0: Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny was buried in Moscow today. Thousands of mourners were there, some chanting anti-Putin slogans. Frank Sinatra's My Way played in the background. The event remained peaceful. Our story is coming up on this Friday, March 1st. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon i'm lisa mullins also coming up efforts to curb social media for minors are popping up in state legislatures advocates say they'd help temper harmful mental health effects but the constitutionality of all out bans is up for debate and many celebrities don't shy away from supporting political and social causes even when there are consequences for doing so for better or worse
1: we live in a time society where Celebrity voices oftentimes matter more than most.
0: Celebrity activism, past and present, coming
2: up, it's 4.01. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. President Biden says the United States will join Jordan in airdropping food supplies into Gaza in the coming days. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports Biden also says... He's looking into the possibility of establishing a marine corridor to get aid into the war-ravaged territory. A day after what he called a tragic and alarming event, when more than 100 Palestinians were killed after a crowd swarmed aid trucks in northern Gaza, President Biden is promising to do more.
3: We're going to insist that Israel facilitate more trucks and more routes to get more and more people to, the help they need. No excuses, because the truth is, aid flowing to gaza is nowhere nearly enough
2: biden says there needs to be hundreds of trucks a day not just a few adding that innocent lives are on the line in gaza he says he's also pushing for a deal to bring about a six-week ceasefire if hamas releases more hostages michelle Kellerman, npr news the state department sounds from outside the church in moscow where thousands of mourners pay their final respects to Alexei navalny the Russian opposition leader whose death his family blames on President Vladimir Putin. Even while he was incarcerated, Navalny remained a powerful voice of dissent against the Kremlin that helped galvanize opposition against Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Final arguments are underway in a hearing over whether Fulton County District Attorney Fani Willis engaged in misconduct and should be disqualified from prosecuting a Georgia election racketeering case against former President Donald Trump and others. In Fulton County Superior Court today, Willis's attorney, Adam Abadi, argued Willis did not financially benefit from an affair she had with a private attorney, whom she hired to manage the racketeering case. Abadi also denounced the opposing side's line of questioning during the proceedings.
4: Embarrassed and harassed the district attorney in a way uh, that was very public, uh, and, and in a way um, that was to um, impugn uh, her character as it relates to. Um, <coughs> that line of questioning in front of the court, uh, in front of uh, anyone watching uh, the proceedings uh, as it
5: unfolded.
2: The court has already heard from the opposing side. Blizzard conditions are bearing down on portions of the Sierra Nevada. As much as 10 feet of snow could fall by the end of the weekend. Residents have been forced to take shelter. Many Lake Tahoe ski resorts are closed. Yosemite National Park also plans to be closed through at least Sunday. Texas Governor Greg Abbott says the largest wildfire in state history has burned as many as 500 structures in the Texas panhandle. The Spokehouse Creek Fire is responsible for at least two deaths. It erupted Monday and has burned roughly 1,700 square miles since then. The cause of the fire remains under investigation. U.S. stocks have ended the day higher. The Dow closed up 90 points. You're listening to NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Maura Healey today filed her $3.5 billion economic development bill with the state legislature. As WBUR's Walter Woodman reports, the proposal would boost the life science, climate tech, and applied artificial intelligence sectors. The governor says the Economic Development Package aims to keep Massachusetts
6: a magnet for life sciences and develop the state's renewable energy portfolio. The Mass Leads Act dedicates about a billion dollars to each sector over 10 years. Any final version will likely be amended by the legislature. The Economic Development Package is Healy's latest ambitious spending plan. The governor is also seeking legislative approval for a $4 billion housing bond bill and the $58 billion annual budget. House and Senate leaders have expressed caution over new spending. State tax collection revenues have been falling for months, and the overstretched emergency family shelter system needs another infusion of money to keep running. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman.
0: The White House is tapping a former Baker administration official to join the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. President Biden yesterday nominated Judy Chang to the commission that oversees electricity and fossil fuel infrastructure. She was the Undersecretary of Energy and Climate Solutions from 2020 to 2022. She's now a lecturer at the Harvard Kennedy School. Chang now needs to win approval from the U.S. Senate. Lowell Public Schools are expecting computer networks at its school and central offices to be up and running again by Monday. The school system was the target of an attempted cyber attack this week. Jen Myers is a spokeswoman for Lowell Schools. She says no data have been breached because cybersecurity teams were able to shut the network down when they learned of the attack, but now they have to check the district's 3,000 computers.
7: So they have been out in the schools all week doing that. And once that's completed, and then they'll work on rebuilding the um, back-end stuff that needs to be done, and then we'll be back online.
0: The attack on Lowell schools comes about a year after an attack on the city's servers. The attack, that one, is still causing some issues. In the forecast, pretty beautiful today. Clouds should move in tonight, though, and spend the weekend. Could have showers tomorrow afternoon, should break 50 degrees tomorrow. And then on Sunday, cloudy again, maybe a few showers again. Temperatures again in the low 50s. 41 degrees now in Boston at 406.
8: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include BritBox, with the goal of helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original series, Archie, the Man Who Became Cary Grant. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR.
9: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California.
10: And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. An enormous crowd turned out in Moscow today to pay respects to the late Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Navalny's funeral came two weeks after he died under mysterious circumstances in a remote Arctic prison. It also followed what Navalny's family says was an extended battle with the state to hold the event. From Moscow, NPR's Charles Maines reports.
11: In Russia's current climate of repression and fear, perhaps the most surprising thing about the funeral for Alexei Navalny was that it passed largely without incident. Hundreds of police and riot troops were positioned around the Orthodox Church near Navalny's home in the south of Moscow in advance of a service no one was entirely sure was safe to attend without risk of detention. Can you imagine this in your country, says Dmitry, a television writer who, like everyone in this story, asked their last names not to be used. Dmitri compared the state's treatment of Navalny's family with something out of the Middle Ages and worried openly about his own impending arrest.
12: I'm not I'm you know, I'm afraid, like many
11: I leave my house, and I'm not sure if I'll see my wife, my kids, or even my cat tonight, he says. I'm afraid, but I'm here, because if I don't come, it means we already live in a dictatorship.
9: Anna,
11: a 59-year-old artist, came prepared. She had documents and a change of clothes in case she was detained and sentenced to a stint in jail, a chilling echo of the purges under
13: Stalin.
10: I
11: wasn't always a fan of Navalny as a politician, but he became a martyr for truth, she says, and I feel obligated to pay my respects.
10: поэтому
14: дань to человеку я считаю
11: And she wasn't alone. Thousands turned out, lining the streets around the church, despite yet another concern, whether the funeral would take place at all. In the weeks following Navalny's death in a remote Arctic prison, his family accused the government of repeatedly thwarting efforts to hold a memorial service for the late opposition leader, a charge the Kremlin denies. Yet even today, Navalny's allies said mortuary services had all refused to transport Navalny's body from the city morgue. So when Navalny's coffin did arrive in a black minivan to the church gates, the crowd broke out in applause, even as security forces pressed forward, pinning people behind metal barricades. As Navalny's parents attended the funeral inside, mourners on the street chanted Navalny's name and many of the political slogans that made him President Vladimir Putin's most famous critic for more than a decade.
15: <laughs> Marina,
11: a designer, said she was attracted to Navalny's anti-corruption work. His investigations into government graft at the highest levels that she argued ultimately cost him his life.
16: Too
11: many good people who try to help the country and not themselves are now dead, she tells me.
16: Он нас он нас вдохновлял, мотивировал, поддерживал.
11: Yulia, a lawyer and young like so many here, says despite the large turnout, it should have been bigger.
16: <laughs> to be
11: honest, I look around and think how many more people would be here, but we're too afraid, she said, adding several of her own friends backed out at the last minute. An hour later, church bells rang out, signaling the end of the service. Navalny's coffin was about to emerge. Mourners threw flowers over the heads of riot police and onto the van that would take him to his final resting place, a nearby cemetery. Men in black, their faces covered in masks, photographed the crowd, a less-than-subtle sign the government was watching who was there. The Kremlin spokesman said President Putin had no interest in today's events and nothing to say to the family. Navalny's allies say authorities did not want a public memorial out of fear it could turn into a protest against Putin and the war in Ukraine. Yet an anti-government protest is in fact what this was, on a day of defiance mixed with grief. Charles Maines, NPR News,
9: Moscow. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell from Kentucky announced this week that he would be stepping down from his leadership role. Sylvia Goodman of Kentucky Public Radio spoke to political leaders in her state and to some of McConnell's constituents about what the change means to them.
5: Republican Senator Mitch McConnell is an institution in Kentucky. He's held onto his Senate seat for nearly four decades and has been the Senate leader for his party since 2007. And state political leaders say his position as a Senate leader is one of the reasons Kentucky stayed on the national radar. This is State House Speaker David Osborne.
17: I do believe that he has been instrumental in not only access to funds. I mean, you look at the infrastructure bill alone, uh, generating billions of dollars for, for the Commonwealth. Uh, so I, I think you have to be a little bit concerned.
5: Kentucky State Senate President Robert Stivers said McConnell has had a huge influence on state politics as well. While the governor is a second-term Democrat, Stivers says McConnell deserves some of the credit for Republican success in flipping the state legislature in favor of his party.
18: But for some of the things that Senator McConnell did, we would not be in the position, nor would this state be in the position that it's in today.
5: But it's not as if McConnell is leaving his congressional seat or totally giving up his immense influence on state or national politics. McConnell has also not announced whether he's planning on running for re-election in 2026. Social worker Ebony O'Reay, a Democrat from Louisville, thinks it's time for a change. I appreciate
9: anyone who's willing to stand and serve. I really do. But at the end of the day, we have to start recognizing when it's time for folks to make room for new leaders.
5: Others, like Matthew Callahan from Northern Kentucky, said he's been concerned that the senator's health could stand in the way of doing his job. McConnell publicly froze while answering reporters' questions twice last year. The attending physician for the U.S. Congress said in a letter after the second incident that his health checked out. But Callahan, an independent who said he didn't vote for McConnell, said that didn't assuage his concerns.
4: Having the power that he does have but still facing certain health issues that the public is not entirely aware of is not necessarily the best for the Commonwealth of Kentucky or just the country in its entirety.
5: McConnell has remained firm that he will complete his term. For NPR News, I'm Sylvia Goodman in Louisville, Kentucky.
10: move over oxford comma there is some new grammar guidance about which everyone is talking i mean grammar guidance everyone's talking about here's how merriam webster puts it it is permissible in english for a preposition to be what you end a sentence with now before you scurry over to your manual typewriter to clack out a letter telling us why merriam webster is wrong let's talk to an actual linguist about it john McWhorter is a professor at columbia university and a new york times columnist Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you so much, Ari. How did you feel when you heard that Merriam-Webster was officially changing its position on this?
19: Well, to be honest, my impression has been that that quote unquote rule has been very much on the ropes over maybe the past generation and maybe couple. I'm not sure how many people are still being taught that there's something wrong with ending a sentence with a preposition, even in writing. And I was happy about that because of all of the blackboard grammar rules, that one has always been one of the most utterly ridiculous. And so for it to now be you know, cast in black and white
10: like this, good, this is the way it should be. Do you know why it was ever taught in the first place, like what its origins were?
19: It's the silliest thing. What it comes down to is that in the 1700s, there were certain brilliant but self-appointed quote unquote grammarians who got it into their heads that they were gonna codify what good English was. These are post- renaissance people who have an idea of latin and ancient greek as the quintessence of language along with maybe sanskrit and biblical hebrew Mm -hmm. they think that english should model itself after latin so people like robert Loth in 1762 decided that you're not supposed to do it in english either, although the famous example is that then he does it in a footnote where he's discussing it. He says it's something that English speakers are inclined to. Nobody knows whether that was a joke of his or not, but that's how silly all of this has always been.
10: There is a famous line that is perhaps falsely attributed to Winston Churchill. He allegedly said the preposition rule is the sort of pedantry. Professor McWhorter, will you say this with me? Yes. Up, up with, with which I shall, I not, shall not put. put. <laughs> yes. And whether and or not he didn't Churchill say it, he actually yeah. said that, the line can be traced at least as far back as the 1940s. So why do you think Merriam-Webster is so late to this party?
19: Well, I haven't spoken to anybody connected with it as to why that happens to have been proclaimed right now. But I think we're in an era where there is an increasing reality check going on about what we're taught is good and bad grammar. And I think that ideas as to what proper grammar is are becoming more flexible because it's been forced by how we're increasingly accepting singular they especially when increasing numbers of people would prefer to be called they
10: so like language is always subtly changing in the background but the changes recently may have been less subtle more visible and therefore we're more open to saying hey let's talk about language the way we're actually using it as opposed to the way long dead people said we ought to have been using it
19: Exactly. And the thing with the prepositions is that where English gets that is Scandinavian languages like Danish. And the thing is, nobody tells any Danish person that there's something wrong with putting a preposition at the end of a sentence. And so why can't we? You know, the world has always kept spinning. And so it's good for us to get over that arbitrary
10: rule. Before we say goodbye, I just have to tell you, when I was in the eighth grade, I was required to memorize all of the English prepositions in alphabetical order. Oh, God. And while I don't want to inflict that on you, I also fear I may never again have a chance to share this precious skill with NPR listeners. Oh, you so, have
19: to release it then. Yeah.
10: <laughs> you know, sometimes we end a segment with music. Um, I thought <laughs> we could kind of incorporate the two here. So <laughs> with your indulgence. <clears throat> A board about above across after against along among around at before behind below beneath beside between beyond but by down during except four from in inside into like near of off on onto out outside over past since through throughout till two toward under underneath until up upon with within without. Linguist John McWhorter of Columbia University. <laughs>
19: Thank you so much. I'm so glad I never <laughs> had to learn that, and that was spectacular. Thank you for having
10: me. Thank you.
9: Oh my God, Ari. You're listening to
0: All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Still to come on WBUR, a hopeful story for this first day of March. A small butterfly is making a remarkable comeback after being thought to have disappeared from Florida. That's still ahead in about 25 minutes on WBUR. Stay with us.
20: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov and Boston Ballet's Winter Experience. Celebrating the evolution of dance with two world premieres. On stage now through March 3rd. Tickets at bostonballet.org.
0: Ups and more ups on Wall Street today. The Dow gained about a quarter of a percent. S&P gained eight-tenths of a percent to close above 5,100 for the first time ever. And the Nasdaq rose more than 1% to take out a record that was set back in 2021. The Hilton Boston Back Bay is being sold for $171 million. The Dalton Street property is owned by the Dallas-based Ashford Hospitality. The firm has not revealed who will be buying the hotel, but says the deal is expected to close later next month. This is WBUR.
20: WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, The Future Starts Now, and Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month, new benefits for 2024. BlueCrossMA.com slash go. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes
21: for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your
0: favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. 41 degrees in the Boston area. Should have clouds moving in overnight tonight. Temperatures down to about freezing. And then more clouds tomorrow. Some showers move in, especially in the afternoon. Warmer tomorrow. Could break 50 degrees. And then for Sunday, cloudy again. Warm again. About the low 50s once again. This is WBUR.
22: Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. From
9: NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang.
10: And I'm Ari Shapiro. We are nearing the end of summer in Antarctica. And it's the third year in a row that sea ice there has melted to new record lows since scientists started keeping track in the late 1970s. That's the conclusion of a report out this week from the National Snow and Ice Data Center. The dwindling sea ice is part of a long-term trend reflecting shifts caused by a warming planet. Ted Scambos is part of a team that spent the last five years studying the Thwaites Glacier in West Antarctica. That glacier is like a plug holding back a much larger quantity of ice. And Ted Scambos joins us from Antarctica. Welcome.
17: Oh, hi. Thank you.
10: You've been going to that southern continent since the early 1990s. And so before we get to the detailed scientific measurements you've been taking, let me just ask whether you have seen changes in the ice in your own experience going there year after year.
17: Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, Not everywhere in Antarctica has obvious huge changes, but some of the areas in Antarctica that are furthest to the north, uh, uh, so in the warmest parts of the continent, have begun to change dramatically. Big enough changes so that, um, you know, the maps have to be redrawn, basically, because the ice simply isn't there even after centuries of having been there, millennia of having been there. Do
10: you see it with your own eyes, flying in year after year or coming in by boat, that you see the shoreline change?
17: Absolutely. What we're studying right now in the Antarctic Peninsula has seen huge changes.
10: Now, you've been studying the Thwaites Glacier for the last five years, and there is a figure that I find shocking, which is that if it melts, the ice it is holding back could eventually raise global sea levels by 10 feet. For that reason, some people have called it the Doomsday Glacier. What are the scenarios that you are actually anticipating?
17: Well, yeah, that's correct. We've had a large project here, an international project, that's been studying Thwaites Glacier for exactly this reason, that the threat from Thwaites is significant, even if it is going to play out over the course of many decades to centuries. Some of the scenarios suggested that Thwaites could potentially collapse in a fashion that was quite rapid and would cause a real threat to many of the world's coastal cities. Those scenarios Uh, have been addressed by the research and we're finding that it's less and less likely that there's an immediate threat from Thwaites within the next 10, 20, 40 years. However, over the longer term, we will see sea level rise from this glacier, but not at a catastrophic rate. Uh, Eventually, we may see this glacier begin to go through this cycle of collapse that was talked about before.
10: As you wrap up this specific five-year project that you've been doing on Thwaites Glacier, how are you feeling compared to when you started?
17: Like we've learned a lot, like not only have we learned a lot, we can tell people a lot about exactly what's going on uh, in that region and um, what to expect in the future. I think we have uh, been able to get at a a, a better forecast for uh, what's likely to come out of Antarctica over the next uh, century or so. It's, it's not good news. It's still uh, going to be a sea level rise rate, but it's not the catastrophic news that may have led to that nickname that you're talking about, Doomsday Glacier.
10: Antarctica is an incredibly unforgiving remote place. Can you give us a sense of what a typical day of research is like studying a glacier?
17: Yeah, well, um, we set up a camp of about five or ten tents one of them sort of the big cook tent and work tent um you have to melt all your water you have to you know cook everything keep everything organized and then you get out and start uh, collecting data Um, and then you know if you do get bad weather a storm or something uh, then you're stuck inside your tent for up to days at a time so usually people keep a couple of days worth of food in their tent with them uh, so that they can um get by while they're, uh, while they're completely cooped up. It's such a fantastic challenge. And, uh, and it is beautiful in a very unique sort of a way. Uh, and of course you are sort of literally on the edge of the earth. Uh, and when you go to a place like Thwaites, you're hundreds of miles away from, from anybody else. And in many cases, walking across an area that's never been crossed before.
10: That's ice scientist Ted Scambo speaking with us from Antarctica. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. A new
9: work is being performed at the New York Philharmonic tonight. It's called Emigre, and it's the story of two Jewish brothers who fled Germany in 1938 to make a new life in Shanghai. As NPR culture correspondent Anastasia Siukis reports, it's based on the true story of the Jewish community in China, a nearly forgotten corner of World War II history.
21: In the late 1930s and very early 1940s, thousands of Jewish people from Poland, Germany, and Austria fled the Nazis and made their way to a new home thousands of miles away in the port city of Shanghai, China. That real-life historical episode inspired conductor Long Yu to create Emigre.
23: The Shanghai Symphony Orchestra at that time, I think 70 to 80% were the Jewish musician.
21: Long Yu knows this history well. Not only is he that orchestra's music director, but his grandfather, composer Ding Shan Day, worked closely with these musicians back then. And you assembled a team to create émigré, including his friend, composer Aaron Zygman. While Zygmunt writes in many styles, he's best known for his film scores, including the 2004 hit romantic drama, The Notebook.
24: I've done a lot of films and just written just a lot of music in general across a lot of different genres. I started out as a pianist, a session pianist, in my early days. The music for
21: Émigré is lush and really cinematic. It's kind of a combination of opera, drama, and musical theater. And it requires huge forces. A full orchestra, a full choir, and seven solo vocalists. At its heart is a fictional love story between a Jewish man and a Chinese woman. But the historical backdrop is real, not just the story of Jewish people coming to Shanghai, but also the occupation of China by Japan during World War II. And although the creative team shies away from talking about contemporary politics, it's hard not to hear resonances. Right now, the U.S. is in the midst of a huge debate on immigration. And yet librettist Mark Campbell says emigre carries a simple message of moral urgency.
6: I would hope that people walk away and remember that there was a country named China that let a group of refugees into their world and let them stay with them. And China was going through a war as well, but let them in. And if there's a lesson to be learned, we have to be more open and let people in.
21: Long Yu hosted some elderly listeners at a rehearsal last week at the New York Philharmonic. They were Jewish New Yorkers now in their 80s and 90s. Yu says the moment brought him to tears.
23: They were all grown up and all was born in Shanghai during that period. And this moment is really, I mean, I, I hardly can use words to describe that because you know, you're shocked. I mean, those people, they are real person in standing in front of you, they love the city.
21: You says that to bring this project to life has been a privilege and honor. It premiered in Shanghai last year. This November, emigre will be performed in Berlin, bringing the story of many of these Jewish emigres full circle. Anastasia and NPR News,
0: New York.
10: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about five minutes, the consequences of speaking out about the Middle East crisis or saying nothing can be severe. Celebrities have long championed political and social causes, but at what cost to their careers? Celebrity activism coming up on WBUR. Celtics look to make it 10 wins in a row when they take on the Dallas Mavericks tonight. Tip-off at the Garden is set for 7.30. And down in spring training today in Florida, the Red Sox fell to the Minnesota Twins 5-3. This is 90.9 WBUR, 41 degrees at 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fairbank & Perry Goldsmiths in Concord. Helping transform your outdated, unused jewelry into fresh and wearable pieces for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. And Live Nation, the Outlaw Music Festival features Willie Nelson, Bob Dylan, and more at Xfinity Center on July 2nd, livenation.com. Well, I got bored, basically.
25: Ethan Cohen returns to theaters after a break without his brother, but still in the family.
15: We're very comfortable and understand the way each other thinks.
25: That's Trisha Cook. Look at her husband Ethan Cohen's Drive Away Dolls and all the latest news. Saturday and weekend edition from NPR News. Start your weekend here tomorrow.
26: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Speaking before a bilateral meeting at the White House with Italy's Prime Minister today, President Biden announced the U.S. will start airdropping humanitarian aid into Gaza as Israel's war against Hamas continues to claim the lives of Palestinians caught in the middle of the fighting. Here's President Biden.
3: Today, also we're gonna discuss the Middle East and yesterday's tragic and alarming event in North Gaza, trying to get humanitarian assistance in there and uh, the loss of life is heartbreaking people are so desperate that uh, uh, innocent people got caught in a terrible war unable to feed their families and you saw the response when they
26: tried to get in. the news comes a day after more than 100 palestinians were killed during a chaotic encounter with israeli troops the civilians were trying to get food and food aid from the trucks the white house has asked israel to investigate the incident israeli officials have said Many of the dead were trampled in the chaos and its troops fired because they felt threatened. Well, the incident in Gaza puts a spotlight on the growing hunger and starvation in the region as and Perazia, Batrari reports.
27: Trucks from Egypt entered Gaza and made their way north into Gaza City, escorted by Israeli forces who control access. Thousands of people waited for the trucks, hoping to get food, like Ahmed al Haj Salem. He says he often waits days in the street for any food aid to come so he can feed his three kids.
23: <laughs> he says
27: he was shot in the leg and arm by Israeli forces on Thursday when he approached one of the aid trucks. He says he bled for two hours in the street before a donkey cart took him to one of the partially functioning hospitals in Gaza City. The health ministry says many people were hit by Israeli fire. The Israeli military says its soldiers opened fire on crowds moving toward the forces, quote, in a manner that endangered the force.
26: That's NPR's Aya Batrawi. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A local infectious disease doctor is questioning the decision by federal regulators to drop the recommendation that people isolate for five days after they test positive for COVID. Boston University School of Medicine Dr. Nahid Badalia says more people may be at risk of getting sick. One of the things that I still find confusing about the
15: current CDC guidance is once you've not had fever for 24 hours and your symptoms are resolving, I'm not sure how many of my patients are taking their temperature at home when they get sick with respiratory viruses.
0: Bedalia says the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention needs to stress that people should only resume their regular activities only after their symptoms improve. The CDC says the change will allow the COVID guidance to conform with the recommendations for respiratory viruses, including the flu. Republican presidential hopeful Nikki Haley will campaign in Massachusetts tomorrow ahead of Super Tuesday's primary. WBOR's Anthony Brooks reports supporters of former
28: President Donald Trump will also rally in the state this weekend. Haley is making good on her promise to stay in the race through Super Tuesday when 16 states and territories, including Massachusetts, vote in presidential primaries. She's planning to rally in Needham tomorrow and then move on to campaign events in Vermont and Maine on Sunday. She says she's offering new generational leadership that most Americans don't want, either Trump or President Biden in the White House, and that Trump will lose in November. But polls suggest Trump remains the overwhelming favorite among Republicans, and he's likely to take a big step towards securing the nomination next week. Trump supporters will gather in Boston on Sunday to host a parade and rally, starting at the USS Constitution and ending at Castle Island in South Boston. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Massachusetts police departments
0: near the New Hampshire border are taking a new approach to fighting drug trafficking. Their Merrimack Valley Anti-Crime Task Force was announced today. It will also focus on organized crime, violent crime, and human trafficking. Police in Tewksbury, Dracut, Chelmsford, and Tingsboro will work with the Middlesex Sheriff's Office. Police say by combining resources, they can be more effective. It's 435. We're funded by you, our
15: listeners, and by Bentley University's nationally ranked MBA and master's programs in technology, finance, and analytics. Become an essential force in today's evolving
0: marketplace. Look for clouds to move in tonight. Temperatures about freezing overnight. Then for tomorrow, lots of clouds are on with some showers likely in the afternoon creeping to 51 degrees. For Sunday, more clouds, maybe a few random showers staying in the low 50s. 41 now in Boston at... 435.
22: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Workday. With AI at the core of its platform, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR platform for a changing world. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquil.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org.
9: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California.
10: And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Actor Hunter Schaefer of the HBO series Euphoria was one of the protesters arrested in New York earlier this week. She and more than 100 other people were calling for an Israeli ceasefire in Gaza. Schaefer is just one of many artists taking a stance on the Middle East crisis. In this age of influence culture, celebrities often get more attention than politicians do, but they can face backlash. NPR's Elizabeth Blair looks at the role of celebrity activism past and present.
1: Celebrities have long said out loud what a lot of people are thinking. Just listen to Jane Fonda in a 1973 TV interview with KQED about the Vietnam War. What business have we to
0: try to exterminate a people? My father fought against people in the Second World War who were trying to exterminate a people. I don't think today we should repudiate everything that our fathers fought against, or fought for in the Second World War, repudiate the democratic ideals that our country was founded
1: on. Fonda was widely criticized for things she said about US troops in Vietnam, but her anti-war stance resonated with millions of people, it still does. Live. At a recent Let protest Gaza on Capitol live. Hill, Oscar-winning actor Let and Thelma and & Louise star Susan Sarandon showed up. Last November, she was dropped by her agents, UTA, United Talent Agency, because of a speech she gave at a pro-Palestinian rally.
0: I was shocked when I was fired from UTA. Both my agents that I'd been with for 10
1: years, who I was felt close to, But that career setback has not slowed her down. Sarandon is a lifelong activist. It's a personality
0: flaw. I mean, when I was little, I thought that my dolls all came alive at midnight and I rotated their dresses so one doll didn't have all the
22: nice
1: dresses all the time. Anything that's unfair always really hurt me. She recently walked the halls of Congress with activists from Code Pink. The feminist group alerted the press she was coming. NBC, Al Jazeera, and other outlets showed up. As a crowd of cameras and protesters followed Sarandon, I asked Code Pink's co-founder, Medea Benjamin, what it meant to have her there. Oh my goodness, it's so important. We've been walking these halls for three months and nobody pays attention to us, especially the Congress people. But having her with us brings out the media and we get the Congress people themselves. Not all of the Congress people. Sarandon met with representatives Rashida Tlaib and Cory Bush, but Richie Torres refused to see her. Sarandon told reporters she suspected he wouldn't meet with her because he receives money from AIPAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. On social media, Torres accused Sarandon of trafficking in, quote, anti-Semitic victim blaming. We often see celebrities getting a lot of backlash when they speak out
29: about foreign policy.
1: Sarah King is an assistant professor in the history, political science and philosophy department at the University of South Carolina, Aiken. That is not their field and they're generally seen as not having particular expertise in those
22: issues. So this is true whether we're looking at the Cold War or the Vietnam War
1: or the war in Iraq or now U.S. support for Israel and its bombardment of Gaza. King says criticism can be especially harsh towards celebrity activists who are women. She points to the difference in how Jane Fonda's activism was described compared to actor Donald Sutherland's. He is discussed as taking a stand, whereas Jane Fonda uh, is described in much more negative terms. There's a Life Magazine article with the phrase prominently nag, nag, nag. And now with social media. There's no way to not be exposed
0: to the vitriol.
1: Actor Alyssa Milano first became an activist in the late 1980s, and over time she's seen the good and the bad of it. When she starred in the hit sitcom Who's the Boss, one of her fans was a teenager named Ryan White, who was HIV positive. The two became friends.
13: He asked me to go
1: on TV to kiss him to prove that you couldn't get HIV AIDS from casual contact. Milano agreed and kissed white on the cheek on The Phil Donahue Show. It was the first time that my being an actor, being on TV, had a purpose that was bigger than I was. But lately, activism has been fraught. Milano is a UNICEF national ambassador. After October 7th, she used her social media platform to share UNICEF's messages, and quickly found out why people are fearful of speaking out. I felt like every time I posted from this
7: place of peace, I was a terrorist sympathizer, or I did not fight strong enough for the oppression
1: of the Palestinian people. If an actor believes enough in a cause, Harry Belafonte once said, he should speak up for it, no matter his position. And celebrities have taken a range of positions. Deborah Messing of the hit sitcom Will & Grace has been outspoken in her support of Israel. Here she is speaking to some 300,000 people in D.C. during the March for Israel last November.
30: We will pray for the success of the IDF in a war Israel did not start and did not want but a war israel will win
1: messing traveled to israel and met with family members of hostages held by hamas and posted those visits on social media i had to um show everyone here that that You know, you're not forgotten. Her trip was organized by the pro-Israel nonprofit Creative Community for Peace. Executive Director Ari Engel says they want celebrities to...
31: Bear witness to what happened at the kibbutzim, to meet people and survivors of the attack. And so we thought it was important for people to, once again, if they want to be educated, we feel it's the best thing to do is go see for yourself.
1: Messing visited a tunnel built by Hamas but did not spend time in Gaza. She and others have been blasted on social media for only talking about one side of the conflict and ignoring the humanitarian crisis facing Palestinians. The war of words between activists and anyone else who wants to weigh in has been ugly. But Ari Engel says the silence following Hamas's deadly attack on October 7th was also troubling. He points to the Writers Guild of America waiting more than two weeks to comment.
31: I think a lot of Jews in the entertainment community felt abandoned.
1: For better or worse, we live in a time and space and society where celebrity voices oftentimes matter more than most and rania batrice expects them to speak up she spearheaded the artists for ceasefire letter that's been signed by more than 300 individuals she says many celebrities were discouraged from signing the letter by their agents or publicists as much as i sort of have this expectation that people will step up and utilize their privilege and their platforms i also am incredibly grateful for those artists who still stepped up despite having all of these voices in their ears telling them not to do it. Actor Melissa Barrera says she will continue to step up. She was fired from the cast of the next Scream movie when she posted pro-Palestinian messages on social media. But instead of retreating, she doubled down. She recently joined a protest calling for a ceasefire at the Sundance Film Festival and expressed no regrets to the Associated Press.
13: Honestly, I feel like I finally am... becoming who I'm supposed
1: to be. Artists, a publicist told me, are supposed to show emotion. That's the whole point of art. He preferred not to be interviewed. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. You're listening to All Things
9: Considered from NPR News. some butterfly species are disappearing due to pesticides and loss of habitat one native florida butterfly that was thought to be gone forever is making a surprising comeback Carrie sheridan of wusf has more
16: a small black butterfly with wings just over an inch long eats nectar from a wildflower
18: you know the thing about italas is they are so gorgeous
16: Craig Heagle is director of the Botanical Gardens at the University of South Florida in Tampa, which is now home to several of these Atala butterflies.
18: It's a dark butterfly, but it's got this fantastic bright red body that you can't miss, and this iridescent blue markings
10: on the wings.
16: Eagle says for years, he's been involved with the Gardening for Wildlife movement, which urges people to choose local native plants instead of flashy tropical ones imported from abroad.
18: The Atel is like maybe the best story because it shows if you put something in your yard,
31: you get something in return.
16: And that something begins with a bushy, dark green plant called the Kunti. It's the host plant where these Atala lay their eggs. The caterpillars eat the leaves and attach their chrysalis to them, then turn into butterflies. At the turn of the last century, Kunti plants were overharvested to make flower. The plants disappeared from the Florida landscape by the 1930s, and so did Atala butterflies. Then one day in 1979, a botanist named Roger Hammer was walking around on Virginia Key near Miami when he spotted a wild Kunti plant.
25: And there was these red larvae with yellow spots down their sides feeding on the leaves, and I wasn't sure what they were. And being an inquisitive naturalist, I collected some, brought them home, and reared them.
16: When the first one emerged from its chrysalis with those inky black wings and red body.
25: Well, it was one of those oh-my-god moments. (laughs) You know, I double-checked to make sure I was seeing what I was, you know, what I believed I was seeing, and sure enough,
16: that's what they were. They were Atala butterflies. We'll never know how they got there. They're native to Cuba and the Bahamas as well, so they could have been blown in by a big storm, or maybe they were there all along. Hammer raised more and brought some to nearby botanical gardens and to wild areas of Everglades National Park. Fast forward to today, and Kunti plants are more common again, in the wild, in yards, and along medians in the roadways. And Atala butterflies are now seen almost all the way up the east and west coasts of Florida. Very excited about that. And so are all the people that come through here
15: and take a look at this, it's it's pretty amazing.
16: Janet Paisley got some Atala eggs into a preserve in her Bayside neighborhood last year. And now, Atalas fly around freely. A few residents walk by, and an atala lands right on a woman's arm. Oh, there he goes. Oh, they're friendly little things. Mm -hmm. These butterflies never made the endangered species list when it became law in 1973 because they were thought to be gone. Sandy Coy has been researching italas for 20 years. She says even though they've spread far beyond their traditional range, they're not out of danger.
0: We take away the host plant again. We pave over too much more habitat. We
15: have a devastating hurricane. Any of those factors could wipe this butterfly
0: out again.
16: Not much bigger than a quarter. Tiny atalas don't fly far or pollinate any crucial crops, but nature lovers across Florida say just helping this little butterfly exist again is a thrill. For NPR News, I'm Carrie Sheridan in Sarasota.
10: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: Thanks for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR, Gaza's borders are tightly controlled and most Palestinians can't leave. Some are managing to escape by paying thousands of dollars to a company with reported ties to Egyptian security services. That story and much more still ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and
1: by Lesley University. Learn from mental health and wellness experts at Leslie
0: University and prepare to make a difference. Learn more at leslie.edu. Coming to Cityspace Monday, March 11th, James Beard award winning chef and TV personality J.J. Johnson discusses his new cookbook, The Simple Art of Rice. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. Overnight tonight, clouds move in, temperatures down to about freezing. Tomorrow, lots more clouds, showers in the afternoon, creeping to about 51 degrees. Clouds again on Sunday, highs in the low 50s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's
1: Winter Experience, celebrating the evolution of dance with two world premieres, on stage now through March 3rd. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC.
24: Recently on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Hari Kondabolu offered everyone a way to make a little extra cash.
14: I'd pay $6 a finger.
24: I'm Peter Sagal. You would need not sacrifice any extremities to enjoy this week's show from Austin, Texas, with rapper Danny Brown. Join us for a show with all of its fingers and toes. That's Wait, Wait from NPR. Saturdays and Sundays at 10 on 90.9 WBUR.
9: This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Elsa Chang. And
10: I'm Ari Shapiro. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has vetoed legislation that would ban social media accounts for children under the age of 16. But the issue isn't going away. DeSantis, a Republican, expects lawmakers to send him a revised version soon. He says it's important to protect children, involve parents, and still allow adults to engage in anonymous speech. This comes as similar measures in other states face legal challenges. Valerie Crowder of WUSF has more.
32: On the same day, 12-year-old Noah Raymond and his classmates were on a field trip at the Florida State Capitol, a proposed ban on social media for kids had advanced through the legislature.
0: I have practically all the social media, Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, and a few others. I use it every single day. I think it's amazing. You get to see what other people get to do.
7: What do you like about social media?
14: Florida is
32: just one of many states that are trying to restrict access to social media platforms for children. State leaders have criticized features that can make social media habit-forming, like infinite scrolling and algorithms that show content based on people's interests. The U.S. Surgeon General has warned that misuse of social media can increase the risk of children developing mental health issues like eating disorders, anxiety and depression. Other potential dangers include cyberbullying, online predators, and inappropriate material. IN ADDITION TO BANNING ACCOUNTS FOR CHILDREN UNDER 16, FLORIDA'S LEGISLATIVE LEADERS HAD PROPOSED REQUIRING SOCIAL MEDIA PLATFORMS TO VERIFY THAT NEW USERS ARE ACTUALLY THE AGE THEY SAY THEY ARE. GOVERNOR RON DESANTIS, WHO'S TOUTED HIMSELF AS A CHAMPION OF PARENTAL RIGHTS, SAID LAST WEEK IT'S A DELICATE BALANCE.
19: I'VE ALWAYS SAID I THINK SOCIAL MEDIA IS A NET NEGATIVE FOR for KIDS. SAME TIME, We're somebody that's believed in in involving parents as much as possible.
32: But there's currently no age verification involved when kids try to make social media accounts, something the Florida bill and others like it aim to address. Greg Gonzalez is from FIRE, a group focused on protecting free speech. He says these types of bills are unconstitutional.
14: It would require age verification for every Floridian Uh, trying to access social media sites. Um, Courts have consistently uh, struck that down as overly burdensome on First Amendment-protected
33: speech.
32: Federal courts have temporarily blocked social media regulations for children in Arkansas, Ohio, and California. NetChoice, a trade association that advocates for tech giants, including Meta and TikTok, has filed lawsuits in those states. Carl Zabo is the association's general counsel.
31: It is unconstitutional to try and ban access to the internet, ban access to information, ban access to speech for somebody just based on their age.
32: And Zabo says age verification requirements can have a chilling effect on adults who might not want to share their personal information when setting up an account.
31: By doing ID for the internet, which is essentially what we're talking about here, you're telling everyone, regardless of age, you could be 66, or you could be 16, that you may not speak, you may not access content unless you turn over massive amounts of information.
32: That's part of the ongoing debate in Florida and around the country as states try to balance constitutional rights with concerns about protecting children. For NPR News, I'm Valerie Crowder in Tallahassee.
9: One hundred years ago, in Lexington, Kentucky, Julia Perry was born. She would grow up to write music like this. Julia Perry's career flourished briefly, but after her death in 1979, she was all but forgotten, and many of her scores remain unpublished. A new album devoted to Perry's music and that of her younger contemporary Coleridge Taylor Perkinson has just been released, and our reviewer, NPR's Tom Heisinga has been listening.
34: You could argue this new album, American Counterpoints, is an encouraging result of the recent racial reckoning. You could also just say it's long overdue. But after the start of the Black Lives Matter movement, the classical music field in the U.S. began a much-needed shift toward black composers. One who's ripe for rediscovery is Julia Perry. That's Perry's darkly textured violin concerto with soloist Curtis Stewart and the experiential orchestra. Perry finished the work in 1968, but it took more than four decades to reconstruct a definitive score in which we can hear all the subtlety, like a violin soaring above a tolling piano. Carrie's career launched in the early 1950s. She won Guggenheim fellowships, studied in Europe, and in 1965 was the first black woman to have a piece broadcast by the New York Philharmonic. But shortly after, her health, finances, and career spiraled downward. She was only 55 when she died, and few remembered her music. The album also offers the more experimental side of Perry. In the symphony in one movement for violas and basses, the music unexpectedly pauses within a halo of droning strings. Like Perry, Coleridge Taylor Perkinson's music has also been neglected, although he enjoyed a longer, more stable career. Born in Manhattan in 1932, Perkinson was versatile. As a pianist, he toured with jazz drummer Max Roach, he arranged songs for Marvin Gaye, and composed for film and television. Reaching back to a pre-Civil War dance of the enslaved, Perkinson wrote Louisiana Blues Strut, A Cakewalk, a couple years before he died in 2004. Curtis Stewart's performance captures all the grit and exuberant syncopation. Several sides of Perkinson are also on display here. He was just 22 when he wrote his Sinfonietta No. 1. In the opening movement, he nearly outhandles George Frederick Handel with elegant braids of Baroque counterpoint, but the soul of the piece lies in the majestic heartbreak of the slow central Largo. album SHINES MUCH DESERVED LIGHT ON TWO IMPORTANT AND REDISCOVERED FIGURES IN AMERICAN CLASSICAL MUSIC, AND THE TIMING COULDN'T BE BETTER FOR JULIA PERRY. MARCH MARKS THE CENTENARY OF HER BIRTH ON THE 25TH, AND A FOUR-DAY FESTIVAL OF HER MUSIC IN NEW YORK.
9: THE ALBUM IS AMERICAN COUNTERPOINTS. OUR REVIEWER IS NPR'S
10: TOM HEISINGA. It's All Things Considered from NPR News.
22: Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. From Fisher Investments, Fisher is committed to helping clients stay on track to reach their financial goals and enjoy a comfortable retirement. Fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from listeners like you, donate to this npr station
0: and this is 90.9 wbur sunshine for this first day of march but clouds blow in tonight should drop to about 32 degrees overnight some high wind gusts as well tomorrow clouds in the morning showers in the afternoon about 51 for a high staying in the low 50s for sunday with lots of clouds around 42 degrees in boston we're
20: funded by you our listeners and by comcast business helping businesses go further with Internet and phone solutions designed to prepare them for the future. Comcast Business, powering possibilities.
21: I'm here and now executive producer Carleen Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime
0: with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Some politicians who supported legalizing marijuana are now backing measures to raise the minimum age to purchase certain marijuana products.
30: Very high potency pot has been developed. A way different beast than the cannabis
0: of 2014. Attempts to curb potent pot coming up. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, some Palestinians are paying tens of thousands of dollars to escape Gaza with their families. The judge in the classified documents case against Donald Trump ended a key hearing today without setting a new trial date. And the CDC is revising its COVID guidelines. It's dropping the five-day isolation period. Some experts agree with the move.
8: Flu is a threat, and so is RSV. What this does is it aligns the guidance to meet all of those challenges, not just one of them.
0: That story and much more still to come. It's 501.
15: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The U.S., Egypt, and Qatar are trying to secure a deal that would free dozens of hostages held by Hamas and secure guarantees from Israel on more aid for starving people in Gaza. M.P. Reza Batraoui reports President Biden says he wants to see the release of hostages and a ceasefire of at least
27: six weeks. The White House says Biden spoke with Egypt's president about how a truce could be, quote, built into something more enduring, as well as the urgency of increasing aid throughout Gaza. The call took place Thursday after Gaza health ministry said at least 115 Palestinians were killed trying to get aid off humanitarian trucks in Gaza City, where hunger is growing. The Israeli military says its soldiers opened fire on crowds moving toward the forces, quote, in a manner that endangered the force, and that also dozens of people were killed as a result of trucks running over the crowds as they mobbed the aid convoy. Survivors describe scenes of chaos and deaths from Israeli tank and gunfire. When asked if this incident would complicate ceasefire talks, Biden told reporters, quote, I know it will. A. and NPR News.
15: Republican presidential hopeful Nikki Haley says her campaign raised $12 million last month, and Pierre Sarah McCammon reports she continues to pour funds into campaigning
30: ahead of Super Tuesday next week. Haley is in the midst of a multi-state campaign swing ahead of Super Tuesday on March 5th. The former South Carolina governor has yet to win a single nominating contest. But Haley says she stayed in the primary race in part because large and small donors have urged her to. They don't ask me what's your strategy. They don't ask me what's
9: your plan. All they say is thank you for giving me hope. We've had fundraisers in every place I've been. No one has said what y'all ask, which is how long are you staying in? No one.
30: So far. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Washington.
15: State lawmakers in Utah passed a bill requiring armed security in every school. Martha Harris with member station KUER in Salt Lake City has more.
22: The requirement for schools to have armed security at every campus is a part of a massive school security bill. Floor sponsor Senator Don Ibsen said if there's a threat.
31: Seconds count. And we gotta have people there that are trained that can protect our kids.
22: The state's largest teachers union opposed the bill because of that requirement. The union's president cites worries that the so-called school guardians won't receive enough quality training. Also included in the bill are new safety requirements, like panic buttons in every classroom. For this, lawmakers allocated $100 million in one-time funds. The state's security chief will set a timeline for how long schools have to get in compliance. For NPR News, I'm Martha Harris in Salt Lake City.
15: Wall Street higher by the closing bell. The Dow up 90 points. The Nasdaq up 183. That's up 1.1 percent. The S&P 500 up 40. And for the S&P 500, that's a record. This is
0: NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. U.S. Representative Lori Trahan is the latest member of the state's congressional delegation to call for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. In a statement today, the Massachusetts Democrat said a ceasefire will save lives and allow humanitarian support to reach Palestinians in Gaza. Trahan calls Israel an important ally to the U.S. that should be allowed to protect its citizens, but she says the number of deaths of innocent people in the ongoing war is unacceptable and must stop. Union workers on the MBTA's commuter rail are hoping for a jump in pay in their next contract. Ed Flaherty is president, the local branch of the Transportation Workers Union. He told an MBTA meeting yesterday that commuter rail workers for the T are paid significantly less than those in other systems. He says wages have shrunk since operations were privatized 20 years ago. The system is run by the French company Keolis.
18: They have first-year cleaners at Keolis who work 40-plus hours a week who qualify for SNAP benefits and Section 8 housing. These jobs used to be a path to the middle class, not a path to the welfare line.
0: MBTA General Manager Phil Lang says the contract talks that have been underway so far are going well.
33: We do look for a good resolution between the parties because we do understand just how important it is for everyone to not only be able to perform their job, but to be able to live the quality of life that they're looking to do
0: the commuter rail contracts cover more than 2000 employees governor morahili is applauding a decision by cvs and walgreens to begin dispensing the abortion medication mifepristone here and in other states The retail giants announced today they'll begin to disperse the drug as as soon as the next week in states where it's allowed. Healy said the decision will help protect access to reproductive care in Massachusetts. Researchers at UMass Amherst say there could be a shortage of more than a million workers needed to fill jobs created by the pandemic-era infrastructure and manufacturing laws. A study by the school's Political Economy Research Institute found nearly 700,000 of those jobs could be in the construction and manufacturing sectors. Researcher Jeanette Wicks-Lim says that could give those industries a chance to hire more women and people of color. There's uh, an opportunity to make sure that workers who have historically had less access to these kinds of occupations would have uh, a greater opportunity researchers say workers would need proper training and that any training program should provide other services such as child care and transportation in the forecast pretty gorgeous out there today but clouds should move in tonight spend the weekend as well could have showers tomorrow afternoon about the low 50s and sunday the low 50s once again clouds maybe just a few random showers 42 degrees in Boston at 507.
8: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington.
9: And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Former President Trump's trial in Florida on charges of withholding classified documents could start as soon as this summer. A federal district court heard arguments today about when the trial will begin. Prosecutors want it to start in July. Meanwhile, Trump's lawyers are asking to postpone it until next year, after the presidential election. NPR's Greg Allen was in the courtroom today and joins us now now from Fort Pierce, Florida. Hey, Greg. Hi, Elsa. So I thought the Florida trial was supposed to start in May. Why is it being pushed back?
18: Well, this case has moved much more slowly than many people thought. Even US District Judge Eileen Cannon seems to not expect it to go this slowly. But much of that has to do with Trump's defense. The former president's lawyers have sought access to a lot of classified material, leading to a lot of motions filed undersea and a closed two-day hearing. In addition, Trump's lawyers have filed at least a dozen motions asking Judge Cannon to dismiss the case. He and his two co-defendants face some 40 criminal counts. Uh, Trump's lawyers today argue the the government case against him is politically motivated. They want Judge Cannon to hold a hearing and to force the government to produce evidence of what they say is a selective and vindictive prosecution. Prosecutors say there's any evidence like that, and they say it would be unprecedented for Judge Cannon to grant them a hearing.
9: Well, if the trial begins in the summer, as as prosecutors want, could it all be finished before the election, you think?
18: Well, possibly. A defense lawyer, Todd Blanche, said today he thinks a trial would take four to five weeks, not including jury selection. Trump has asked Judge Cannon for an August trial date. But his lawyers also said they think the trial should really be put off until next year, well after the presidential election.
9: Is the timing of this trial at all affected by the three other criminal trials that Trump is facing? What do you sense?
18: Well, there's a lot of discussion in court today about that, uh, and especially about the criminal trial Trump's facing for allegedly being involved in making hush money payments to adult film actress uh, Stormy Daniels. Mm -hmm. That trial is slated to start later this month in New York. Trump and one of his lawyers in this case will have to be at that trial for those six weeks. Uh, They they, they told Judge Cannon it's going to take them at least six weeks for that trial. Um, And Judge Cannon hasn't ruled yet on how that will affect this trial or when this trial will start. But clearly she's going to have to take that New York trial into account in in doing this.
9: Yeah. Well, I know that another issue that's come up in the Mar-a-Lago case is whether potential witnesses will be identified. Did the judge at all talk about that?
18: Well, uh, yes. Judge Cannon surprised many legal experts last month when she said that witness names could be made public uh, in, in some of the filings here. Prosecutors objected, saying, uh, saying that the court had, quote, made a clear error by doing that. Uh, Judge Cannon today seemed a little stung by that criticism. She said in court in court that the court, quote, the court takes matters of openness quite seriously. Uh, prosecutors said revealing the names of potential witnesses, though, could expose them to threats and harassment. and That's already happened in this case. Uh, last year, after FBI agents executed a search warrant at Mar-a-Lago, prosecutors say some of the agents were threatened and harassed.
9: Huh. Well, also, I, I understand that both special counsel Jack Smith and Donald Trump were in the courtroom today. Was there any interaction between them?
18: Uh, No, not that I saw. Uh, Jack Smith sat behind uh, his prosecutors quietly observing the proceedings. Uh, Trump was subdued. He sat at the defense table and chatted with his attorneys as the the long hearing went on. He left the courthouse without making any comments, though. It was really a much different Donald Trump than we
10: saw in his recent New York trials. So interesting.
9: That is NPR's Greg Allen in Fort Pierce, Florida. Thank you so much, Greg.
10: You're welcome. The CDC is dropping its recommendation for an isolation period after COVID. The agency is replacing it with general guidance for respiratory viruses. The message is, stay home when you're sick. NPR's Ping Huang has more on why the change was made.
13: If you have COVID or flu or RSV or whatever respiratory infection, Dr. Mandy Cohen, head of the CDC, says the agency's advice is now simple.
27: So if you do get sick with a respiratory uh, illness, you get a fever, a cough, body aches, you should stay home. Importantly, get tested because testing allows you to get treatment.
13: Previously, CDC said you should stay home at least five days if you test positive for COVID. Now, if you're feeling better and you don't have a fever, Cohen says you can get back to your normal life while taking additional precautions for the next five days.
27: Things like ventilation, wearing a mask, hand hygiene, staying away from others. So you want to keep protecting folks who are around you.
13: The updated advice makes sense to Dr. Renard Washington. He's health director in Charlotte, North Carolina.
8: With COVID, is still a threat. But flu is also a threat, and so is RSV. Like, uh, I think what this guidance does is it aligns the guidance to meet
13: all of those challenges, not just one of them. A CDC survey showed that less than half of people were testing this winter. And the CDC says the change in guidance may not make much of a difference to transmission. Many people who got COVID weren't isolating anyways. It also says hospitalizations and deaths are way, way down from 2022. Still, Caitlin Jettalina, epidemiologist and CDC advisor, points out that there are almost 20,000 people getting hospitalized with COVID each week.
1: I would really hate for us to just throw up our hands and be like, oh, this is what it is, 20,000 hospitalizations per week, because that is unacceptable. But I'm looking for interventions that actually will move
13: that needle. Most hospitalizations and deaths are in people who are 65 and older, and especially those that didn't get a booster shot last fall. We need to reach those people
1: either through increased access, either through trusted
13: messengers, either
1: through listening and answering their questions. I mean, this is, this is the hard work.
13: Detelina says what could really move the needle is to get more people at high risk vaccinated once a year for flu and twice a year for COVID. This week, the CDC recommended a spring COVID booster shot for those 65 and older. Ping Huang, NPR News.
9: What does it take to escape the war in Gaza? It takes $5,000 per person, to be exact, $2,500 for a child. Hundreds of Palestinians are paying that fee every day for the privilege of exiting through Gaza's only open border crossing. Where does that money go? Well, NPR's Daniel Estrin has the story.
4: An NPR producer in Gaza saw a few hundred people crowd the Rafah border crossing as their names were called one by one. Unless you are among the lucky few who have a foreign passport or a foreign country appealing on your behalf, or have approved medical treatment in Egypt, the only way out of Gaza is to pay.
12: My name is Mazin. I am a mechanical engineer. He was
4: waiting to cross the border.
12: After we lost everything in Gaza, all our positions, we have to collect the amount of money, which is a big sum, just to buy our lives.
4: To buy our lives. He paid the astronomical wartime price of $20,000 for his family of four. He had to borrow the money.
12: It took a long time. Not only time, not only money. You pay your money to be insulted.
4: The process is complicated. Gazans need a relative in Cairo to apply on their behalf. Hundreds wait outside the company building. Some have paid thousands of dollars just to get in the door. Many Palestinians consider the whole system a bribe.
12: Actually, it's a bribe. But what we can do, this is the only options and solution that we have.
4: This man, Mohammed, paid $17,000 and left Gaza with his family a few weeks ago. We're not fully identifying the Palestinians we spoke to. They don't want any trouble with Egypt, where they're seeking refuge. Egypt says all payments for travelers from Gaza are in line with Egyptian laws.
12: Gazans paying to exit Gaza is not a new phenomenon.
4: Haysam Hassanin is an Egyptian-American researcher.
12: They are trying to condition uh, mainstream Palestinians that coming to Egypt wouldn't be an easy option.
4: Egypt does not want a permanent mass displacement of Palestinians and doesn't want to take in Islamist militants. But the minority of Gazans who can afford it get out by paying the Egyptian tourism company,
12: Hala. But what I could tell you that, that there is no way they will be operating such a company in such critical times without the Egyptian security approving or having full knowledge of that.
4: The company is owned by Egyptian businessman Ibrahim Al-Argani. Hassanein says the businessman has helped Egyptian security build contacts with tribes in the Sinai border region near Gaza, where security forces battled extremists for years. He says the businessman's connections are key to him running this border-fee service.
12: Nowadays, it's seen as an opportunity to get more dollars into the Egyptian market. Egypt's economy
4: is struggling. Suez Canal revenue is down. Cargo ships are avoiding the area because of Houthi missiles. Egypt is desperate for dollars. Hassanen believes Egyptian security officials take a cut from the wartime prices Gazans are paying to cross the border.
12: Apparently, in the eyes of those uh, business individuals, uh, there is a shortage of the hard currency in the Egyptian market, and surely some cash from rich Gazans could help.
4: As the death toll rises and Israel threatens a ground operation in the last sliver of Gaza where a million Palestinians are sheltering, the demand to leave Gaza is rising. To buy their way out, Palestinians are trying to raise the money through the website GoFundMe. Reem Ziad in London tells us she's seeking donations through GoFundMe to get her 25 relatives out of Gaza, including her parents and sisters. Her sister's husband was killed in an Israeli
30: strike. Bad,
4: she says it might be seen as a bribe, but it's actually about saving people from death. So far she's raised about $1,000. of what she needs to pay for her family to get out of Gaza. Daniel Estrin, NPR News.
10: Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: Coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR's All Things Considered, Republican President hopeful Nikki Haley comes to the Bay State this weekend, and she is further clarifying her thinking on reproductive rights, including the fertility procedure known as IVF. That story and much more still to come.
20: WBUR supporters include Mass General Brigham Health Plan, offering innovative plans, comprehensive coverage, and a broad network of doctors all connected to one of the world's leading health care systems. Mass General Brigham Health Plan, with you every day. For more information, call your broker or visit MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org.
0: Ups and downs and more ups on Wall Street today. The Dow gained about a quarter of a percent. S&P gained eight-tenths of a percent to close above the 5,100 mark for the first time. And the Nasdaq rose more than 1% to take out a record that was set in 2021. This is WBUR.
20: WBUR supporters include Coolidge Corner Theater in Brookline, presenting new and classic films since 1933, with two new state-of-the-art theaters opening soon. Learn more at Coolidge.org.
5: I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it, and thanks.
0: Just go to WBUR.org. Increasing clouds overnight tonight, and they should stick around for the weekend. Showers tomorrow afternoon should break about 50 degrees, then Sunday, cloudy again. Maybe a couple of random showers, temperatures in the low 50s. It's 520.
22: Support for NPR comes from the station, and from JITASA, providing bookkeeping, accounting, and CFO services exclusively to the nonprofit sector. JITASA is committed to serving nonprofits who make the world a better place jitaasa.com and from the NPR wine club where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows available to adults 21 or older nprwineclub.org this is npr
0: this is all things considered from NPR news i'm Mary Louise Kelly and
10: i'm Ari Shapiro Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell wrote his college thesis on Kentucky Senator Henry Clay and his role in the Compromise of 1850. That compromise was an attempt to avoid open conflict over slavery and broker a peace between free and slave states. That thesis began McConnell's lifelong fascination with Clay, and it kicked off his quest to become the next great senator from Kentucky. This year marks his 38th as a senator from the Bluegrass State. And this week McConnell reflected on his career as Kentucky Senator when he announced he'd be stepping down as the Republican leader in the Senate. Journalist and author Michael Tackett is writing The Price of Power, a biography of McConnell. Hi there. Hi, how are you, Ari? I'm good. Um, You know, it's a provocative title, The Price of Power. What price do you think Mitch McConnell paid to become the longest serving leader in Senate history?
31: Well, there are several. One, he paid the price of being uh, one of the least popular senators in the country, both among Republicans and Democrats. Two, he paid the price of having to endure the scorn of the former president, Donald Trump. And three, he had to deal now with a very restive and combative right flank in the Senate. So he did pay a heavy price for it. But at the same time, he ended up, you know, as it turns out, got to write his own last chapter, by resigning on his own terms
10: or saying that he was going to resign as leader. You've had access to McConnell's archives. You've interviewed him extensively. What's surprised you as you've been reporting this book?
31: A few things have surprised me. One is the depth to which his parents kept records and the extent to which he has kept records. So for my purposes, it's just a wonderful trove to go over to try to tell more of the complete story. I think that the thing that surprised me is People see McConnell in a sort of monochromatic fashion. They only see him, you know, in the Senate, uh, walking from one place to the other, or more commonly just standing in the well of the Senate, giving a speech. Uh, He's a much more complicated person, much more complex person. And believe it or not, Ari, he actually laughs. Um, (laughs) I've
10: seen it. Um, believe it or not says a lot really
31: (laughs) yeah and and he's also uh he's very sentimental uh Mm -hmm. really values a lot of family memories really values a lot of personal relationships and yet you know it could be a very lonely existence in his job but the fact that he focused on that job single mindedly is probably what sets him apart from a lot of other senate leaders most as you know most members of the Senate wake up, look in the mirror and see the next president of the United States. And that was never his aspiration.
10: He has really shaped today's Republican Party, and also feels out of step with the Trump Party of today. In your conversations with him, has he reflected on seeing the GOP move away from the party he was raised in, and and helped define through so much of the 20th and early 21st century?
31: Yes, and this is particularly true in terms of the party's worldview. Uh, He comes to the Senate during the Reagan era when the idea of peace through strength, uh, you know, to combat the Soviet Union and to rely on international alliances and international relationships to achieve that. The idea that international trade accords were actually a good idea, not a bad idea for the American economy. All those things have sort of fallen by the wayside in the Trump era as Trump has lurched the party and its people to the right. Interestingly, though, several members of the Senate um, who are now some of his sharpest critics, just to name one, J.D. Vance of Ohio, almost certainly wouldn't be in the Senate without the help of the McConnell Super PAC, the Senate Leadership Fund. Which put
10: tens of millions of dollars into Vance's race. So even as he laments the changes to the Republican Party that he might not approve of, does he feel in any way responsible for those changes? Does he have any regrets? You know that that's one thing that's been that's
31: been the harder wall to crack hmm. is to uh, to get any kind of confessionals. In that sense, maybe at some point before before my research is over,
10: uh, <laughs> we'll hear those. But I haven't heard a lot of them yet. What has he said to you about Trump?
31: Well, uh, let's, or are you let's waiting for he's... the book
10: to publish to
31: make news? <laughs> All right, you've got to spend the twenty-four dollars like everybody else. <laughs> uh, he, uh, you know, he's made pretty clear repeatedly that he stands by the remarks he made, both after January sixth and on his decision to uh, vote to not impeach him, where he said that the criminal and civil justice systems would still hold him to account. So there's not much uh, doubt that there's no love lost between the two men.
10: Michael Tackett is Deputy Washington Bureau Chief for the Associated Press, and he is the author of the forthcoming book, The Price of Power, a biography of Mitch McConnell. Thanks so much for talking with us about him. Thank you, Ari. It's been a pleasure.
9: Firefighters are trying to contain a wildfire in the Texas Panhandle. It has now burned about 1,700 square miles, making it the largest wildfire in Texas history. Rachel Ozier lindley of the Texas Newsroom has glimpses of life near the burn zone.
29: Jessamine English is manning the cash register at Alexander's, a favorite convenience store and deli in the tiny town of Canadian, Texas. And all week, she's been ringing up a lot of hungry and tired firefighters, whose food and drink are free because of community donations. Sometimes we have to argue a little bit, (laughs) but no, food is covered. We are just thankful that you are here to help. Canadian, population under 3,000, is one of several small communities dotting the plains north of Amarillo, ordered to evacuate Tuesday as the fast-moving fire swept through the region. Homes were destroyed, grasslands and ranches scorched. It was heartbreaking, it was very heartbreaking to see. Heather Helms is picking up some food. I mean, you just don't even realize that in the split of a second, it can all be gone. Helms drove from Oklahoma to be with her parents. Her father helped residents get out as the fire approached. Right now, I'm just waiting for my dad to get out of the hospital because he inhaled too much smoke, so they're keeping him for another day. With the region's high winds and years of drought, people living here have seen fires before, but nothing like this.
3: It's definitely a historical fire.
29: Juan Rodriguez is with the Texas A&M Forest Service, the state's lead firefighting agency. He says conditions, including strong winds and unseasonably warm weather, contributed to the fire's rapid spread.
3: We were experiencing winds sustained at 30 to 40 miles an hour, wind gusts up to 60 to 70 miles an hour. The fire was moving extremely fast, consuming everything in its path.
29: Two women are the only confirmed deaths so far and officials say tens of thousands of cattle were likely killed. A few miles west of Canadian's main strip, dozens of cows wander the roads. All around, the grass is charred and black.
15: That's the generator.
29: Here, Tatum
22: Pennington and her husband run a ranch with some 300 head of cattle. And right now, we would be at the height of calving season, so we've had a lot of babies and mamas that have
29: passed away. When the fire got close, Pennington evacuated with her children and dogs, They're back now, but didn't have power until volunteers brought over a generator yesterday. You can hear it rumbling in the wind outside her house as she points out the devastation on her property.
15: We found several cattle that were burned severely, but they weren't dead yet. It was just gruesome. That's probably been the toughest, darkest moments we've had. Um,
29: We had to shoot a bunch of cattle yesterday. She says it'll take years to build back the operation. And Texas officials are warning that higher winds and warmer weather this weekend could expand the fire if firefighters can't get a handle on the blaze soon. For NPR News, I'm Rachel Osher Lindley in Canadian, Texas.
10: This is NPR News.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this Friday afternoon. One in the loss column for the Sox in spring training today. They were taught by Minnesota Twins 5-3. to three. Celtics look to make it 10 straight wins when they take on the Dallas Mavericks tonight at the Garden. Tip-off is at 7.30. The Bruins and Boston professional women's hockey team are both off until tomorrow. And in soccer, the Revs have their home opener on Sunday. 41 degrees in Boston at 5.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions
15: are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at BrooklineBank.com. Member FDIC. And the Peabody Essex Museum with "Our Time on Earth," an immersive exhibition about creativity and our planet's future, on view now. PEM.org.
24: Recently on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Hari Kundabolu offered everyone a way to make a little extra cash.
14: I'd pay $6 a finger.
24: <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. You would need not sacrifice any extremities to enjoy this week's show from Austin, Texas, with rapper Danny Brown. Join us for a show with all of its fingers and toes. That's Wait, Wait from NPR. Saturdays and Sundays at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR
26: News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Warm temperatures and strong winds are in the forecast today across the Texas and Oklahoma panhandles, where wildfires this week have destroyed a number of homes and killed at least two people. NPR's Kirk Sigler tells us the smokehouse fire in Texas is the biggest in state
14: history. In just a few days, the Smokehouse Fire has already burned well over a million acres. Range fires like this do explode fast and can cover huge amounts of ground in seconds, especially due to invasive grasses and extremely dry conditions. But this fire is already far bigger than some of California's historically biggest blazes, including the notorious Dixie Fire in 2021 and the Mendocino Complex of fires the previous year. The largest recorded wildfire in modern U.S. history is believed to have been in 1910 in Idaho, and Montana at 3 million acres. In Texas, meanwhile, authorities are warning of continued fire growth of at least four blazes through this weekend. Kirk Sigler, NPR News.
26: Well, today is the deadline for states to submit climate action plans to the EPA in hopes of securing federal funding to address the problem. From Montana Public Radio, Ellis Julen has more.
29: The plans outline proposed projects state governments could implement to significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the next five years. In Montana, the plan is focused primarily on upgrading aging school infrastructure. Steve Thompson is with Electrify Montana, one of the groups backing that proposal.
31: With hotter,
6: longer, drier, smokier summers, that's spilling over into the school year.
29: In a state with a mostly rural population, many schools lack air conditioning and air filtration systems. Other states will have different priorities depending on their emissions. Tribes and cities are also drafting climate plans due to the EPA on April 1st.
0: For NPR News, I'm Ellis Julin in Missoula.
26: Stocks finished higher on Wall Street today. This is NPR.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. U.S. Senator Ed Markey is planning to hold a congressional hearing in Boston next month on operations of for-profit hospitals. That includes the impact of the financial problems in Massachusetts at Stewart HealthCare. The company has said its problems are jeopardizing operations at its nine hospitals in the state. Markey spoke this afternoon after he visited Stewart's Good Samaritan Hospital in Brockton.
34: I will be calling the CEO and I will be calling uh, every other relevant participant in this
0: crisis. Markey says Stewart's financial instability is placing health care access in the state at risk. Governor Moore Healy said last week she wants Stewart to transfer its hospitals to another operator and leave the state. Governor Healy today filed her $3.5 billion economic development bill with the legislature. As WBR's Walter Withman reports, the proposal would boost the life science, climate tech, and applied artificial intelligence sectors. The
6: governor says the economic development package aims to keep Massachusetts a magnet for life sciences and develop the state's renewable energy portfolio. The Mass Leads Act dedicates about a billion dollars to each sector over 10 years. Any final version will likely be amended by the legislature. The economic development package is Healy's latest ambitious spending plan. The governor is also seeking legislative approval for a $4 billion housing bond bill and the $58 billion annual budget. House and Senate leaders have expressed caution over new spending. State tax collection revenues have been falling for months, and the overstretched emergency family shelter system needs another infusion of money to keep running. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman.
0: An experimental theater group based in the Boston area will mount a storytelling show this weekend modeled after the moth. WBUR's Solon Kelleher reports the event will present seven stories from locals of South Asian descent.
34: Harini Ayer works as a salesperson during the day. At night, she's an aspiring stand-up comic. This weekend, she'll tell her most personal story yet as she takes the stage at Voices in Burlington. It's a biennial event that to Ayer is more than just a storytelling show.
15: It's important for people to be counted because if you don't say it out loud, then people don't know that you exist. And if they don't know you exist, then it, like there is no identity then.
34: Ayer hopes that her story helps audiences expand their understanding of what it means to be South Asian in America. For 90.9
0: WBUR, I'm Solon Kelleher. It was nice to see the sunshine for this first day of March, but clouds should blow in tonight. Temperatures drop to about freezing some high wind gusts. Tomorrow, clouds in the morning, showers in the afternoon, about 51 for a high, staying gray for Sunday. Temperatures in low 50s again. It's 535.
22: Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies solve food, from employee meal plans to on-site staffing, with corporate accounts, nationwide restaurant coverage, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
10: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington.
22: And I'm Elsa Chang
9: in Culver City, California. Republican presidential hopeful Nikki Haley is further clarifying her thoughts on reproductive rights issues, including the fertility procedure known as IVF. Just because I think embryos are babies. Doesn't mean everybody else thinks embryos are babies. Haley spoke with a group of reporters this morning in D.C. during a campaign swing through the region ahead of next week's Super Tuesday primaries. NPR's Sarah McCammon was there and joins us now. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so the reason we're even talking about this, there's been this renewed focus on IVF in the past couple weeks because of the recent ruling from the Alabama Supreme Court which could threaten access to this fertility procedure, right? What have Republicans been saying about that ruling?
30: That's right. So that decision from the Alabama Supreme Court has created a scramble within the Republican Party, and it's highlighted issues around reproductive rights at a time when Republicans have been largely on the defensive after the overturning of Roe v. Wade. The decision in Alabama prompted fertility clinics there to halt the procedure IVF, and Republicans from former President Trump to Alabama's Governor Kay Ivey to Nikki Haley have been expressing at least nominal support for ensuring access to the procedure. Right. But Haley, she's had
9: to clarify her position on this.
30: What is she saying now? So she initially sort of stumbled when she was asked about it by NBC News. She said that she sees embryos as babies and appeared to be endorsing the Alabama court's decision. Now, she quickly clarified that a couple of times, saying that that's her personal view. And she stressed her support for access to IVF while also talking about her own past fertility struggles. Here's what Haley said about it when I asked her about it today. When you're going through something that hard... You don't want government telling you anything else to get in the way of that conversation. That's between the doctor and the parents who have to decide it. It's very personal. Mm -hmm. Now, Haley says that embryos should be treated with respect, as she put it. But again, she says decisions about what to do with them should be up to patients and their doctors. And Elsa, if that sounds familiar, you know, that language that Haley is using about IVF is Mm -hmm. very similar to the way abortion rights advocates for years have talked about abortion exactly you know this idea that these are personal decisions sometimes difficult ones and that abortion should be as they often say between a woman and her doctor
9: right and, and Haley I mean she has said that she totally welcomes state restrictions on abortion so, so
30: why do you think she sees IVF differently you know I asked her about this I asked if decisions about embryos created through IVF should be between a patient and a doctor as she says then why not decisions about abortion On IVF, I think states need to decide that, too. I think the people need to decide what's happening. And you're going to see that play out in Alabama and other
9: places. They're going to now start to weigh in. But that needs to be close to the people where the people can give their voice. My overall thing is this never should have been in the hands of
30: unelected justices. Now, it's worth noting, Elsa, that most Alabama judges are elected, including those state Supreme Court justices. Mm -hmm. Haley left the door open there to letting state legislatures regulate IVF. And there is some legislation advancing in Alabama that's designed to protect access to the procedure, at least to some extent. But reproductive rights advocates have been warning since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade a year and a half ago that threats to treatments like IVF would be next.
9: Well, what about Republican voters? Where are they on IVF?
30: You know, the challenge for Republicans is that the politics around IVF just are not the same as abortion politics. Polls indicate Republican voters, even religious conservatives, overwhelmingly support access to IVF. And so it's a tricky issue for the party because many anti-abortion activists take the view that life begins at conception, as they say. And so from that framework, you get efforts to restrict abortion at every stage and often some forms of contraception and fertility treatments. You know, I was at a Haley rally in Richmond yesterday. Yesterday and voters told me they either didn't have a thought about IVF or they supported it.
9: That is NPR's Sarah McCammon. Thank you so much, Sarah.
30: Thank you.
10: As marijuana has gone mainstream in the U.S., lawmakers in states that legalized it are now grappling with what to do about concentrated versions of the drug, especially in light of mental health concerns. NPR's Martin Costi has more. Cannabis concentrates are oils, pastes, and glassy solids, which can be smoked or vaped
33: or made into edibles. They're a growing share of the legal market and a popular topic for marijuana influencers on YouTube.
10: That is insane. (laughs) Oh, take me to the
17: danger zone on the first hit, okay. God, yeah.
33: Yeah, concentrates are strong. Marijuana itself usually runs about 15% THC. That's the main compound that makes you high. Concentrates range upwards of 80 percent, and most states don't set an upper limit.
22: When people come in, they can look as if they have schizophrenia.
33: Beth Bell is a pediatrician in Seattle, and she's treated teens who've come to the ER after consuming concentrates.
22: I've seen kids who have jumped off a balcony or jumped from heights with an acute psychotic break after the use of these high-potency products.
33: A 2019 study in The Lancet found users of high-potency pot were five times more likely to have a first-time episode of psychosis. Other research points to an increased rate of schizophrenia. The risks are thought to be greater for young people whose brains continue to develop into their 20s. We
30: know it spells serious trouble for a lot of people. Adolescents and young adults, especially.
33: This is Mary Lou Dickerson testifying in January for a bill to raise the age to buy concentrates in Washington state up to 25. Dickerson's a former lawmaker and was part of the original effort to legalize marijuana.
30: And I do not regret doing that. However, very high potency pot has been developed. A way different beast than the cannabis of 2014.
33: But are concentrates really a different beast? Paul Armentano does not buy it.
30: This
35: narrative combines the two historical tropes that prohibitionists
10: have always used. Marijuana will make you crazy, and this isn't your father's marijuana.
33: Armentano is deputy director of Normal, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. He says it makes no sense to regulate something differently just because it's stronger.
35: We don't have one age limit for Bacardi
11: 151 and another age limit for beer. People can understand
35: that there's distinctions between the potency of the products.
33: He also doubts the links to psychosis, saying the Lancet study wasn't precise enough about THC levels. He and the cannabis industry warn that this is really just about bringing back prohibition. And at the state level, they're winning the argument. So far this year, efforts to cap the strength of pot products have died in Florida and in New Hampshire. And that bill in Washington state, it was gutted and no longer raises the minimum age. One of the sponsors, State Senator Jesse Solomon, is frustrated by the clout of the cannabis industry. I supported the legalization of marijuana. I just never thought it would be so capitalistic as to disregard public health. And You know, they've become pretty powerful. Another sponsor, State Representative Lauren Davis, remains optimistic. Her bill still requires cannabis stores to post warnings about the mental health risks of concentrates. She likens that to those signs in bars that warn pregnant women about drinking. It's more public awareness, she says, and that may yet lead to tighter regulations down the road. Martin Costi, NPR News.
9: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In North Carolina, Republican candidates for Congress are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars of their own money to buy TV ads ahead of Tuesday's primary. Colin Campbell with member station WUNC explains why wealthy candidates could have the best shot at filling five open house seats.
35: North Carolinians like to joke that their congressional lines are good for one election only, thanks to legal wrangling over partisan redistricting. This year's example, 10 of the state's 14 congressional districts heavily favor Republicans. That's thanks to new maps drawn by the GOP-held legislature. Five of those Republican-friendly districts have no incumbent. Voters are hearing a lot from the 34 different Republicans running across the five seats. I
29: spent my career fighting for families, farmers, and small
28: businesses. I'm Fred Von Cannon, and I approve this message. Let's elect an outsider who will stand with President Trump. I'm Josh McConkey.
35: Many of those candidates have so far spent at least $50,000 of their own money. That's a total of more than $6 million. Political newcomer Fred Von Cannon alludes to his finances in a TV ad that suggests money won't influence him in Congress.
28: I won't take a salary as your congressman, so you can be sure I won't bow to lobbyists, liberals, or even other Republicans.
35: The rise of self-funders like Von Cannon is somewhat of a shift for the state, which has often seen candidates rise from the state house to congressional office. State Representative Erin Pere was one of the candidates following that trajectory. She's a mom and small business owner who represents Raleigh's suburbs in the state house.
29: Frankly, we would have had to spend our entire life savings on this race. And to me, that's not a smart thing to do. And you have kids at home and it's not something I really wanted to do.
35: Paré dropped out of the race for the state's 13th congressional district last November. She would have been the only candidate in the race who's held elected office before. A total of 14 Republicans are running in the district that wraps around the Raleigh-Durham area like a red crescent moon. Four of them are spending at least $200,000 from their own personal fortunes. Voters here have been deluged with ads promoting the candidates. Many of them feature a similar message. The border. While
28: politicians talk, Brad not acts. If you want to secure our border, restore our economy, and protect our kids, I'm your candidate. It's time we secure our border and protect our families.
35: Because to me, securing our southern border, it's personal. The crowded field of candidates has few differences on policy issues like immigration and the economy. Chris Cooper, a political scientist at Western Carolina University, says voters are likely making their decision based on other factors.
31: You're voting on style. You're voting on
34: rhetoric. You're voting on how well they give you those messages.
35: Cooper adds there's a lot of uncertainty that comes with electing someone who has no legislative record. I think there is a good bit of
31: unpredictability and who's going to win and, frankly, how they're going to act once they end up in Congress. We know the positions they take. They all take roughly the same positions. But how
29: effective they are, I think, remains to be seen. Perret agrees. You just get to learn about and understand where the difficulties are, what you want to fix up there just because it became a problem for you down at the state level. Mm-hmm. That's the experience that I think is valuable for a state legislator to, to take up to D.C. So I think that there is value there.
35: But this year's short election timeline may place more value on money and candidates who can chip in their own cash on day one. The new maps were released in late October. That gave candidates little time to persuade individual donors to help their campaigns. One person voters in the 13th district won't be considering is their current representative. Democrat Wiley Nickel. decided not to run for re-election after his district was redrawn. He's now pushing for redistricting reform. For NPR News, I'm Colin Campbell in Raleigh, North Carolina. You're listening
10: to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. may take a little bit longer this weekend to get from East Boston to Logan Airport to downtown Boston. As part of ongoing restoration work, the Sumner Tunnel will be closed from 11 tonight through 5 Monday morning. Detour signs will be in place, and people flying out of Logan are encouraged to use public transportation. This is WBUR.
20: WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast.
0: The future starts now. A photo exhibit of Black Panther women is on display in Boston. Tomorrow morning here at 90.9 WBUR, meet the local woman who was surprised to learn she was in the exhibit. Start your Saturday right here. Nice weather to start up the new month, but the first weekend in March should be kind of wet. Look for clouds to move in tonight, about freezing for a low. Tomorrow should be heavy on the clouds, showers likely in the afternoon, creeping to 51 degrees. Sunday, clouds hang in there. Could have a few off-and-on showers on Sunday, staying in the low 50s. Early next week should be in the 50s as well. 41 degrees now in Boston at 549.
20: WBUR supporters include Release Wellbeing Center, opening in Boston's Back Bay mid-March. Experience their saunas, cold plunge, massage, and more. ReleaseWellBeingCenter.com
25: Well, I got bored, basically. Ethan Cohen returns to theaters after a break without his brother, but still in the family.
15: We're very comfortable and understand the way each other
25: thinks. That's Tricia Cook. Look at her husband Ethan Cohen's drive-away dolls and all the latest news. Saturday and Weekend Edition from NPR News. Start your weekend here tomorrow.
9: This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ilsa Chang.
10: And I'm Ari Shapiro. Louisville, Kentucky is trying to figure out what to do with a statue of its namesake, King Louis XVI of France. The nearly 200-year-old monument was gifted by Louisville's sister city of Montpellier, France in the 1960s, but it was damaged during racial justice protests in 2020, at a time when cities across the country were rethinking controversial statues. Louisville Public Media's Roberto Roldan reports.
36: They are around the corner!
14: Stay ready! In May 2020, a sea of hundreds gathered outside of Louisville Metro Hall to protest the police killing of Breonna Taylor. One man climbed up onto the pedestal of a large statue depicting King Louis XVI. He placed his full weight on the statue, and the man, and Louis's marble hand, fell into the crowd. The King Louis statue remained on its pedestal throughout the summer, handless and covered in graffiti. The city took it down that September, and more than three years later, it remains in
7: storage. I think that some might assume that we're sort of stalling. We just don't have an obvious solution at this point.
14: That's Jessica Kincaid, Louisville's public art administrator. She says part of the reason the statue to Louisville's namesake hasn't been put back on view is a price tag. Repairs were estimated at around $200,000. Conservation firms found damage dating back much further than 2020 to its life in France and its voyage to Kentucky in the 1960s.
7: The stone material has veining in it, and some of those veins can release over time. The more you move such a heavy object, the more likely it is to have those veins release.
14: Once in Louisville, King Louis also suffered from poor caretaking, and Kincaid said the freeze-thaw cycle of the Ohio River Valley hasn't been
7: kind to him. If something is a porous material, water and moisture can seep into it, and of course when it freezes, it expands.
14: Like other communities across the country, the city is also grappling with what their public art represents. According to a survey from 2022, 40% of people didn't think the 18th century monarch represents their values. Many zeroed in on Louis's connection to colonialism and resistance to democracy at home. Others, like local Republican Metro Council member Kevin Kramer, says the statue symbolizes what the city's founders believed, that France's support was instrumental to the American Revolution
33: if it hadn't been for the french willingness to be involved in this if it hadn't been for the
4: distraction i don't know how you overlook the significance the importance of that
14: kramer says he wants a statue put back on display 90 percent of the people who responded to the city survey agreed but they also differed on what that would look like put him back out headless for historical accuracy one person said others said the damage and the graffiti should stay as a symbol of the 2020 protests Catherine Ridgway, a conservator at the Virginia Department of Historic Resources, says cities need to work with communities when deciding what to do with controversial monuments. And for some, leaving monuments graffitied and damaged can be the right decision.
5: The goal with this was to sort of make a definition between vandalism that is for damage's sake and the idea that there is graffiti and vandalism that has to do with social justice movements.
14: In Columbus, Ohio, just a three-hour drive from Louisville, Residents and city officials have also spent the last three years debating a statue to their own namesake, explorer Christopher Columbus. Like Woolville, Columbus removed the monument from in front of City Hall in 2020, but the city recently received a grant from the Mellon Foundation to explore what contextualizing the statue might look like. Jennifer Fenning with the city's Department of Development says they've hired a Native American-led design firm to tell a more nuanced story about Columbus the figure and Columbus the community.
29: We hope to design a space where the statue can be used to tell the stories of people who haven't felt seen and celebrated in our city, and to articulate who we are as a community today in light of our namesake.
14: Fenning says Columbus will hold multiple public meetings in the coming year that will center the communities with the biggest stake in the conversation, Italian American and Native American residents. But back in Louisville, things are at a standstill. Preservationists say King Louis should only be displayed indoors, But Kincaid, the city's public art administrator, says local museums don't have a place
7: to display a nine-ton statue. It can't just be put into any building. There would have to be structural support, reinforcement of floors, having an access point large enough to get the sculpture through the door. For now, city officials say they've exhausted all options. Kincaid
14: says discussions have moved on to what should take King Louis' place outside of City Hall and how permanent it should be.
7: Most public art programs are a little cautious, you know, to turn around and replace it with something else very permanent. While we're still navigating that conversation that precipitated the removal of all of these monuments.
14: The hope is to find a new namesake of sorts, something that can represent the community and its values in the present day. For NPR News, I'm Roberto Roldan in Louisville.
9: Barbie, NIAD, and Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part One all have something in common, besides the fact that the films are all up for Academy Awards this year. These three movies all passed a new simple test that measures the presence of climate change on screen. NPR's Chloe Veltman reports that it's based on the famous Bechtel test,
37: which draws attention to the representation of women. No one would describe Barbie as a movie about the impacts of climate change.
20: Looking good, Barbie.
37: But the topic sneaks in, like when the teenage character played by Ariana Greenblatt goes on a rant about the many ways in which Barbie is bad.
12: You are killing the planet with your glorification of rampant consumerism.
37: It's because of this line that the pinkest and perkiest of summer blockbusters passed the new climate reality check. It was created by climate change storytelling consultant Sea Good Energy in collaboration with Colby College in Maine. Good Energy CEO and founder, Anna-Jane Joyner.
30: The test is, does climate change exist in the world of your story? And if so,
37: does a character know it? A movie must also meet two additional criteria. That it's set on this earth and that it takes place now or in the future. These rules actually disqualify more than half of the 31 features up for Academy Awards in 2024, including stories set in the past like Killers of the Flower Moon with its important message about the dangers of fossil fuels.
3: The land had oil on it. Black
37: gold. But Joyner says the climate reality check is meant to make climate change stories feel more immediate.
30: We really felt the need to just directly name climate change as a part of
37: our world and our lived experience. So of the 13 movies that made the cut, only two besides Barbie passed the climate reality check. The latest Mission Impossible action epic.
16: It's going to be a war for the last of our dwindling energy, drinkable water, breathable
37: air. And the biopic about Diane Nyad's attempts to swim from Cuba to Florida in dangerous conditions caused by rising sea temperatures. So
0: the you Miami folks think that the box jellyfish came up off the shallow reef when we left Cuba.
37: Global warming Three movies that mention climate change doesn't seem like many, yet Joyner is pleased with the test's baseline results.
30: It just gives us another example of how these stories can be very commercially successful.
37: She says she hopes to see 50% of contemporary movies and TV shows acknowledging climate change by 2027. Chloe Veltman, NPR News.
10: Have a great weekend. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
22: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness. With standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and all-terrain tires, it's designed for paths not yet taken. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. From Jones Day, an integrated partnership collaboratively providing legal services for more than a century, Forty-two offices, five continents, serving clients as one firm worldwide. Learn more at jonesday.com. From Progressive Insurance, Progressive is looking for dedicated and forward-thinking individuals to join their growing team. More information, including application, at progressive.com careers. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. 41 degrees now in the Boston area. Should have some clouds blowing in tonight. Temperatures dropping to about 32. High wind gusts tonight. And for tomorrow, clouds in the morning. Showers in the afternoon. Staying cloudy for Sunday. Should have weekend highs in the low 50s.
27: I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Thousands of mourners turned out in Moscow today for the burial of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Frank Sinatra's My Way played in the background. Police stood by and the event went off peacefully. Our story is coming up on this Friday, the 1st of March. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Kentuckians react to Senator Mitch McConnell's announcement that he'll step down as Republican leader in November.
9: I appreciate anyone who's willing to serve. I really do. But we have to start recognizing when it's time to make room for new leaders.
0: McConnell hasn't shared whether he'll run for re-election in 2026. And Merriam-Webster has declared that English sentences may now end with prepositions. So what do we go to all those English classes for anyway? It's All Things Considered. You're listening to lots more to tell you about.
15: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden says the United States will join Jordan and other nations to provide airdrops of food and humanitarian supplies into Gaza in the coming days. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports his administration will work on shipments by water and land as well.
29: During a meeting with Italian Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney, Biden told reporters that the U.S. would push Israel to get more aid trucks into Gaza and increase the number of routes to
3: get aid in. Aid flowing to Gaza is nowhere nearly enough now. It's nowhere nearly enough. Innocent lives are on the line and children's lives are on the line.
29: But the White House wouldn't offer a timeline on when that airdrop would happen, for how long it would continue, nor is there a timeline for the maritime aid. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, the White House. Thousands of mourners turned out in Moscow today
15: to pay their respects to the late Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. And here's Charles Maines reports from Moscow he died two weeks ago under mysterious circumstances in a remote Arctic prison.
11: Despite a heavy police presence and fears of arrests, the funeral for Alexei Navalny went largely without incident. Thousands lined the streets around an orthodox church not far from Navalny's home in Moscow to pay final respects to President Vladimir Putin's fiercest critic. While Navalny's parents attended funeral rites, the crowds waited outside, pinned behind police barricades, often chanting Navalny's name, and the political slogans that made him famous. Ahead of the service, Navalny's family accused the Kremlin of scuttling efforts to hold a public event out of fear it could turn into a protest. Yet an anti-government protest is what it resembled, even if supporters' defiance was mixed with grief. Charles Maine's NPR News, Moscow.
15: CVS and Walgreens say they've been certified to start dispensing the abortion medication mifepristone. In Alina Seljuk reports the country's biggest drugstore chains say they plan to roll out the option at select locations
5: in the states where laws permit it. The Food and Drug Administration decided last year to allow retail pharmacies to start dispensing mifepristone, but required those pharmacies to go through a new certification process. Now, CVS and Walgreens representatives say the two companies have both completed this program. Walgreens says it plans to begin filling prescriptions for the drug within a week. CVS says in the weeks ahead, as it's still working to get the medication, both say it will be a phased rollout that will comply with federal and state laws. Walgreens plans to start in some locations in New York, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, California, and Illinois. CVS will begin with Massachusetts and Rhode Island. Alina Seluch, NPR News.
15: Wall Street higher by the and bell. The S&P 500 closed at a record above 5,100 for the first time. The Dow was up 90 points. The Nasdaq up
0: 183. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. A local infectious disease doctor is questioning the decision by federal regulators to drop the recommendation that people isolate for five days after they test positive for COVID. Boston University School of Medicine Dr. Nahid Badalia says that more people may be at risk of getting sick.
15: One of the things that I still find confusing about the current CDC guidance is once you've not had fever for 24
0: hours and your symptoms are resolving, I'm not sure how many of my patients are taking their temperature at home when they get sick with respiratory viruses. Vidalia says the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention needs to stress that people should only resume their regular activity after their symptoms improve. The CDC says the change will allow COVID guidance to conform with the recommendations for other respiratory viruses, including the flu. Republican presidential hopeful Nikki Haley will campaign in Massachusetts tomorrow ahead of the Super Tuesday primary. As WBR's Anthony Brooks reports, supporters of former President Donald Trump will also rally in the state this weekend.
28: Haley is making good on her promise to stay in the race through Super Tuesday when 16 states and territories, including Massachusetts, vote in presidential primaries. She's planning to rally in Needham tomorrow and then move on to campaign events in Vermont and Maine on Sunday. She says she's offering new generational leadership that most Americans don't want, either Trump or President Biden in the White House, and that Trump will lose in November. But polls suggest Trump remains the overwhelming favorite among Republicans, and he's likely to take a big step towards securing the nomination next week. Trump's supporters will gather in Boston on Sunday to host a parade and rally, starting at the USS Constitution and ending at Castle Island in South Boston. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Researchers on Cape Cod are tracking a white shark as it
0: swims deeper into the Gulf of Mexico. They've already followed it farther west into the Gulf than any shark's been tracked before. Here's WBUR's Rob Lane.
31: The shark is about 14 feet long and weighs more than a ton. Megan Winton is a staff scientist at the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy in Chatham. She tells WBUR's Radio Boston her team is tracking the shark via a satellite tag clamped to its fin.
9: She's in uncharted territory as far as white sharks go.
7: So I'm just so excited to see where she goes next. We got a couple of more pings over the night She seems to be tracking south along the Mexican coastline right now.
31: Tracking white sharks helps scientists better understand how to protect the animals from fishing boats and nets. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane.
0: Clouds on the increase overnight tonight. They should stick around for the weekend. Could have showers tomorrow afternoon, breaking uh, about 51 tomorrow. Then Sunday, cloudy again, maybe a few showers during the day, again in the low 50s. 41 degrees in Boston at 607.
8: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Carnegie Corporation of New York. Supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org.
9: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California.
10: And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. An enormous crowd turned out in Moscow today to pay respects to the late Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Navalny's funeral came two weeks after he died under mysterious circumstances in a remote Arctic prison. It also followed what Navalny's family says was an extended battle with the state to hold the event. From Moscow, NPR's Charles Maines reports.
11: In Russia's current climate of repression and fear, perhaps the most surprising thing about the funeral for Alexei Navalny was that it passed largely without incident. Hundreds of police and riot troops were positioned around the Orthodox Church near Navalny's home in the south of Moscow, in advance of a service no one was entirely sure was safe to attend without risk of detention. Can you imagine this in your country, says Dmitry, a television writer who, like everyone in this story, asked their last names not to be used. Dmitri compared the state's treatment of Navalny's family with something out of the Middle Ages and worried openly about his own impending
12: arrest. I'm I'm you know, I'm afraid, like
11: I leave my house and I'm not sure if I'll see my wife, my kids or even my cat tonight, he says. I'm afraid, but I'm here, because if I don't come, it means we already live in a dictatorship.
9: Anna,
11: a 59-year-old artist, came prepared. She had documents and a change of clothes in case she was detained and sentenced to a stint in jail, a chilling echo of the purges under Stalin. I wasn't always a fan of Navalny as a politician, but he became a martyr for truth, she says, and I feel obligated to pay my respects. And she wasn't alone. Thousands turned out, lining the streets around the church despite yet another concern whether the funeral would take place at all. In the weeks following Navalny's death in a remote Arctic prison, his family accused the government of repeatedly thwarting efforts to hold a memorial service for the late opposition leader, a charge the Kremlin denies. Yet even today, Navalny's allies said mortuary services had all refused to transport Navalny's body from the city morgue. So when Navalny's coffin did arrive, in a black minivan to the church gates, the crowd broke out in applause, even as security forces pressed forward, pinning people behind metal barricades. As Navalny's parents attended the funeral inside, mourners on the street chanted Navalny's name and many of the political slogans that made him President Vladimir Putin's most famous critic for more than a decade. (laughs)
2: Да,
15: он сосредоточился вот на именно на борьбе с
11: a designer, said she was attracted to Navalny's anti-corruption work, his investigations into government graft at the highest levels that she argued ultimately cost him his life.
15: Слишком много хороших людей, которые старались,
11: Too many good people who tried to help the country and not themselves, are now dead, she tells me.
16: Он нас плачал, он нас вдохновлял, мотивировал, поддерживал.
11: Yulia, a lawyer and young like so many here, says despite the large turnout, it should have been bigger. To be honest, I look around and think how many more people would be here, but we're too afraid, she said, adding several of her own friends backed out at the last minute. An hour later, church bells rang out, signaling the end of the service. Navalny's coffin was about to emerge. Mourners threw flowers over the heads of riot police and onto the van that would take him to his final resting place, a nearby cemetery. Men in black, their faces covered in masks, photographed the crowd, a less than subtle sign the government was watching who was there. The Kremlin spokesman said President Putin had no interest in today's events and nothing to say to the family. Navalny's allies say authorities did not want a public memorial, out of fear it could turn into a protest against Putin and the war in Ukraine. Yet an anti-government protest is in fact what this was, on a day of defiance mixed with grief. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow.
9: Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell from Kentucky announced this week that he would be stepping down from his leadership role. Sylvia Goodman of Kentucky Public Radio spoke to political leaders in her state and to some of McConnell's constituents about what the change means to them.
5: Republican Senator Mitch McConnell is an institution in Kentucky. He's held onto his Senate seat for nearly four decades and has been the Senate leader for his party since 2007. And state political leaders say his position as a Senate leader is one of the reasons Kentucky stayed on the national radar. This is State House Speaker David Osborne.
17: I do believe that he has been instrumental in not only access to funds. I mean, you look at the infrastructure bill alone, uh, generating billions of dollars for, for the Commonwealth, uh, so I, I think you have to be a little bit concerned.
5: Kentucky State Senate President Robert Stivers said McConnell has had a huge influence on state politics as well. While the governor is a second-term Democrat, Stivers says McConnell deserves some of the credit for Republican success in flipping the state legislature in favor of his party.
18: But for some of the things that Senator McConnell did, we would not be in the position, nor would this state be in the position that it's in today.
5: But it's not as if McConnell is leaving his congressional seat or totally giving up his immense influence on state or national politics. McConnell has also not announced whether he's planning on running for re-election in 2026. Social worker Ebony O'Reay, a Democrat from Louisville, thinks it's time for a change.
9: I appreciate anyone who's willing to stand and serve. I really do. But at the end of the day, we have to start recognizing when it's time for folks to make room for new leaders.
5: Others, like Matthew Callahan from Northern Kentucky, said he's been concerned that the senator's health could stand in the way of doing his job. McConnell publicly froze while answering reporters' questions twice last year. The attending physician for the U.S. Congress said in a letter after the second incident that his health checked out. But Callahan, an independent who said he didn't vote for McConnell, said that didn't assuage his concerns.
4: Having the power that he does have but still facing certain health issues that the public is not entirely aware of is not necessarily the best for the Commonwealth of Kentucky or just the country in its entirety.
5: McConnell has remained firm that he will complete his term. For NPR News, I'm Sylvia Goodman in Louisville, Kentucky.
10: Move over Oxford comma, there is some new grammar guidance about which everyone is talking. I mean, grammar guidance everyone's talking about. Here's how Merriam-Webster puts it. It is permissible in English for a preposition to be what you end a sentence with. Now, before you scurry over to your manual typewriter to clack out a letter telling us why Merriam-Webster is wrong, let's talk to an actual linguist about it. John McWhorter is a professor at Columbia University and a New York Times columnist. Welcome back to All Things Considered.
19: Thank you so much, Ari.
10: How did you feel when you heard that Merriam-Webster was officially changing its position on this?
19: Well, to be honest, my impression has been that that quote-unquote rule has been very much on the ropes over maybe the past generation and maybe couple. I'm not sure how many people are still being taught that there's something wrong with ending a sentence with a preposition, even in writing, and I was happy about that because... Of all of the blackboard grammar rules, that one has always been one of the most utterly ridiculous. And so for it to now be, you know,
10: cast in black and white like this, good. This is the way it should be. Do you know why it was ever taught in the first place? Like what its origins were?
19: It's the silliest thing. What it comes down to is that in the 1700s, there were certain brilliant but self-appointed quote-unquote grammarians who got it into their heads that they were going to codify what good English was. These are post- Renaissance people who have an idea of Latin and ancient Greek as the quintessence of language, along with maybe Sanskrit and biblical Hebrew. Mm -hmm. They think that English should model itself after Latin. So people like Robert Loth in 1762 decided that you're not supposed to do it in English either, although the famous example is that then he does it in a footnote where he's discussing it. He says it's something that English speakers are inclined to. Nobody knows whether that was a joke of his or not, but that's how silly all of this has always been.
10: There is a famous line that is perhaps falsely attributed to Winston Churchill. He allegedly said the preposition rule is the sort of pedantry. Professor McWhorter, will you say this with me? Yes. Up Up with with which which I shall not not put. put. (laughs) Yes, And whether or not Churchill actually said that, the line can be traced at least as far back as the 1940s. So why do you think Merriam-Webster is so late to this party?
19: Well, I haven't spoken to anybody connected with it as to why that happens to have been proclaimed right now. But I think we're in an era where there is an increasing reality check going on about what we're taught is good and bad grammar. And I think that ideas as to what proper grammar is are becoming more flexible because it's been forced by how we're increasingly accepting singular they especially when increasing numbers of people would prefer to be called they
10: so like language is always subtly changing in the background but the changes recently may have been less subtle more visible and therefore we're more open to saying hey let's talk about language the way we're actually using it as opposed to the way long dead people said we ought to have been using it
19: Exactly, and the thing with the prepositions is that where English gets that is Scandinavian languages like Danish. And the thing is, nobody tells any Danish person that there's something wrong with putting a preposition at the end of a sentence, and so why can't we? You know, the world has always kept spinning, and so it's good for us to get over that arbitrary rule.
10: Before we say goodbye, I just have to tell you, when I was in the eighth grade, I was required to memorize all of the English prepositions in alphabetical order. Oh, God. And while I don't want to inflict that on you, I also fear I may never again have a chance to share this precious skill with NPR listeners. Oh, you so, have to
19: release it then.
10: <laughs> you know, sometimes we end a segment with music. Um, I thought we could kind of incorporate the two here. So with your indulgence. <clears throat> A board about, above, across, after, against, along, among, around, at before, behind, below, beneath, beside, between, beyond, but, by, down, during, except, four from, in, inside, into, like, near, of, off, on, onto, out, outside, over, past, since, through, throughout, till, two, toward, under, underneath, until, up, upon, with, within, without. Linguist John McWhorter of Columbia University.
19: Hi. Thank you so much. I'm so glad <laughs> I never had to learn that, and that was spectacular. Thank you for having
10: me. Thank you.
9: Oh, my God, Ari. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. As Donald Trump's bills mount, the Republican National Committee is considering a resolution to restrict them from spending money on Trump's legal fees. We'll explain tomorrow morning right here at 90.9 WBUR. Ups and more ups on Wall Street today. The Dow gained about a quarter of a percent. S&P gained eight-tenths of a percent to close at 5,100 for the first time And the NASDAQ rose more than 1% to take out a record that was set back in 2021. The lobster catch in Maine is down to its lowest level since the year 2009. Data showed just under 94 million pounds of lobster were caught caught last year. That's down 5% from the year before. Lobster fishing organizations say they face threats from the proposed rules that would change their equipment so it doesn't endanger rare North Atlantic right whales. They also say lobsters are moving north as the Gulf of Maine warms up due to climate change. It's 620.
20: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Coolidge Corner Theater, a cultural treasure in the heart of Brookline since 1933. Experience the best contemporary and classic films in two new state-of-the-art theaters and enjoy film education programs and special events in their new Community Engagement Center, opening soon. Learn more at Coolidge.org.
25: I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love.
0: Just go to WBUR.org. High winds tonight. Clouds move in. Temperatures down around 32 degrees. Tomorrow, clouds in the morning. Some showers in the afternoon. 51 for a high. Staying in the low 50s for Sunday with mainly gray skies. This is WBUR.
22: Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. From NPR News,
9: this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang.
10: And I'm Ari Shapiro. We are nearing the end of summer in Antarctica. And it's the third year in a row that sea ice there has melted to new record lows since scientists started keeping track in the late 1970s. That's the conclusion of a report out this week from the National Snow and Ice Data Center. The dwindling sea ice is part of a long-term trend reflecting shifts caused by a warming planet. Ted Scambos is part of a team that spent the last five years studying the Thwaites Glacier in West Antarctica. That glacier is like a plug holding back a much larger quantity of ice. And Ted Scambos joins us from Antarctica. Welcome!
17: Oh, hi. Thank
10: you. You've been going to that southern continent since the early 1990s. And so before we get to the detailed scientific measurements you've been taking, let me just ask whether you have seen changes in the ice in your own experience going there year after year.
17: Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, Not everywhere in Antarctica has obvious huge changes, but some of the areas in Antarctica that are furthest to the north, uh, uh, so in the warmest parts of the continent, have begun to change dramatically. Big enough changes so that... Um, You know, the maps have to be redrawn, basically, because the ice simply isn't there even after centuries of having been there, millennia of having been there. Do
10: you see it with your own eyes flying in year after year or coming in by boat that you see the shoreline change?
17: Absolutely. What we're studying right now in the Antarctic Peninsula has seen huge changes.
10: Now, you've been studying the Thwaites Glacier for the last five years, and there is a figure that I find shocking, which is that if it melts, the ice it is holding back could eventually raise global sea levels by 10 feet. For that reason, some people have called it the Doomsday Glacier. What are the scenarios that you are actually anticipating?
17: Well, yeah, that's correct. We've had a large project here, an international project that's been studying Thwaites Glacier for exactly this reason, that the threat from Thwaites is significant, even if it is going to play out over the course of many decades to centuries. Some of the scenarios suggested that Thwaites could potentially collapse in a fashion that was quite rapid and would cause a real threat to many of the world's coastal cities. Those scenarios... Uh, have been addressed by the research. And we're finding that it's less and less likely that there's an immediate threat from Thwaites within the next 10, 20, 40 years. However, over the longer term, we will see sea level rise from this glacier, but not at a catastrophic rate. Uh, Eventually, we may see this glacier begin to go through this cycle of collapse that was talked about before.
10: As you wrap up this specific five-year project that you've been doing on Thwaites Glacier, how are you feeling compared to when you started?
17: like we've learned a lot, like not only have we learned a lot, we can tell people a lot about exactly what's going on uh, in that region and um, what to expect in the future. I think we have uh, been able to get at a a, a better forecast for uh, what's likely to come out of Antarctica over the next a uh, century or so. It's, it's not good news. It's still uh, going to be a sea level rise rate, but it's not the catastrophic news that may have led to that nickname that you're talking about, Doomsday Glacier.
10: Antarctica is an incredibly unforgiving remote place. Can you give us a sense of what a typical day of research is like studying a glacier?
17: Yeah, well, um, we set up a camp of about five or ten tents one of them sort of the big cook tent and work tent um you have to melt all your water you have to you know cook everything keep everything organized and then you get out and start uh collecting data um and then you know if you do get bad weather a storm or something uh then you're stuck inside your tent for up to days at a time so usually people keep a couple of days worth of food in their tent with them uh, so that they can um get by while they're, uh, while they're completely cooped up. It's such a fantastic challenge. And, uh, and it is beautiful in a very unique sort of a way. Uh, and uh, of course, you are sort of literally on the edge of the earth. Uh, and when you go to a place like Thwaites, you're hundreds of miles away from, from anybody else. And in many cases, walking across an area that's never been crossed before.
10: That's ice scientist Ted Scambo speaking with us from Antarctica. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. A new work is
9: being performed at the New York Philharmonic tonight. It's called Emigre, and it's the story of two Jewish brothers who fled Germany in 1938 to make a new life in Shanghai. As NPR culture correspondent Anastasia Siukis reports, it's based on the true story of the Jewish community in China, a nearly forgotten corner of World War II history.
21: In the late 1930s and very early 1940s, thousands of Jewish people from Poland, Germany, and Austria fled the Nazis and made their way to a new home thousands of miles away in the port city of Shanghai, China. That real-life historical episode inspired conductor Long Yu to create Emigre.
23: The Shanghai Symphony Orchestra at that time, I think 70 to 80 percent were the Jewish musician.
21: Long Yu knows this history well. Not only is he that orchestra's music director, but his grandfather, composer Ding Shan Dei, worked closely with these musicians back then. And you assembled a team to create émigré, including his friend, composer Aaron Zygman. While Zygman writes in many styles, he's best known for his film scores, including the 2004 hit romantic drama, The Notebook.
24: I've done a lot of films and just written just a lot of music in general, across a lot of different genres. I started out as a pianist, a session pianist in my early days.
21: The music for Émigré is lush and really cinematic. It's kind of a combination of opera, drama, and musical theater. And it requires huge forces. A full orchestra, a full choir, and seven solo vocalists. At its heart is a fictional love story between a Jewish man and a Chinese woman. But the historical backdrop is real, not just the story of Jewish people coming to Shanghai, but also the occupation of China by Japan during World War II. And although the creative team shies away from talking about contemporary politics, it's hard not to hear resonances. Right now, the U.S. is in the midst of a huge debate on immigration. And yet, librettist Mark Campbell says, emigre carries a simple message of moral urgency.
6: I would hope that people walk away and remember that there was a country named China that let a group of refugees into their world and let them stay with them. And China was going through a war as well, but let them in. And if there's a lesson to be learned, we have to be more open and let people in.
21: Long Yu hosted some elderly listeners at a rehearsal last week at the New York Philharmonic. They were Jewish New Yorkers now in their 80s and 90s. Yu says the moment brought him to tears.
23: They were all grown up and all was born in Shanghai during that period and this moment is really I mean I, I hardly can use word to describe that because you know you're shocked I mean those people they are real person in standing in front of you they love the city
21: You says that to bring this project to life has been a privilege and honor it premiered in Shanghai last year this November emigre will be performed in Berlin bringing the story of many of these Jewish emigres full circle Anastasia Tsulikas, NPR News, New
0: York.
6: This
10: is NPR News.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. The first weekend in March should be kind of wet. Look for clouds moving in tonight. Temperature's about freezing. Tomorrow, heavy on the clouds. Showers likely in the afternoon, creeping to 51 degrees. Clouds should hang in there on Sunday. Maybe some random showers staying in the low 50s. This is WBUR. It's 6.30. WBUR supporters include H&H, the Handel & Haydn Society. Maestro Raphael Pichon leads a fresh take on Beethoven's 9th. March 15th and 16th at Symphony Hall. HandelandHaydn.org.